It's the TFC Audio Project. Hello, wonderful humans. Welcome back to the TFC Audio Project. On today's episode of Health Intelligence, I'm speaking with Julien Pinot from StrongFit, who has recently become one of my top uh, learning resources through his podcast and someone who has both, I think, a deep understanding and also a broad one when it comes to health, fitness, and you know, everything all the way to physics, which I think is rare. It's rare to find someone who has breadth and depth. So I'm really stoked for today. Julian, thanks for carving out some time for the conversation today. My pleasure. My pleasure. We have some coaches in common. I guess they got us together. So that's great. I'm very happy to. Uh, yeah. I haven't done a podcast outside of mine for a while. So I'm actually very excited. I'm very, very happy to do this. Okay. Amazing. Um, yeah. Mitch Harbaugh, Foot Nerd Program. Yeah. He's the one who connected us. And uh, yeah. he he just kind of sprinkles podcasts to me once in a while because you guys put out so much content. And, he, and every single one I listen to, it's kind of like this reward mechanism where I know if he sends me a podcast of yours, I need to listen to that like right away because it's going to be awesome. So yeah. Thanks, Mitch. Kudos to him. So I'm thinking a good place to kick things off uh, based on sort of both my own curiosity and to give our community some background info is to hear the sort of a brief origin story of how StrongFit came to be and sort of what the objective of that project is. Cause I'm sure it's, you know, if it's anything like TFC, it's very, it's probably fairly broad, but I'd love to hear how it started and what you want to do with it. Right. Well, so I think it's important for people to understand that uh, fitness training sports, whatever you want to call it, has been uh, my thing, like all of it, always. Like it's, it's. Uh, I guess it's very important because he explains where I come from, right? So I've, I've done like national level sports since I'm like nine years old. I think I started with soccer. I think so. We went to the you know European Cup of ten year olds, and mm-hmm. uh, so I'm sure it was very good. Um, and you know, like from there, so it's always been sports. Fascinated with comic books and. Arnold Schwarzenegger and all that stuff, but always found MMA. So always in sports. And as I um, found MMA late, unfortunately, in my 20s already, uh, I had the greatest coach. My first coach, I always remember him, David Nguyen from Vietnam, but actually trained in Thailand. And he was an early guy who, who thought like you could be a Thai boxer and a jiu-jitsu guy and a wrestler. So he was really ahead of his time, right? And he was the greatest coach, honestly. Uh, and he gave me the, um, like, at first, he gave me just a physical, uh, you know, like warm up for the class. Well, because uh, I'm just getting in, but also it's a year in, I'm starting to, to really enjoy the jiu-jitsu. I'm not that good at striking, but jiu-jitsu, the grappling, obviously I have a talent for it. So I'm starting to do a lot of body weight exercises because I realized that bodybuilding wasn't, wasn't enough. Mm-hmm. and wasn't working and so i'm starting to get good at it i'm having fun and he wants me to train his class and i and he's like look it was a small very small room he was like there's too many of us there's 20 of us you need to murder everybody so half of them leave i was like all right i can do that i like i like it i like where you're going with this so i murder everybody and within two weeks we go from 20 to 40. oh shit okay yeah. and he was like that's not what i asked i was like i don't understand I keep blasting them and they keep coming back. And I was like, maybe I have a gift for this. Uh, but or maybe you tapped into something that nobody knew they wanted, but they actually did. Exactly. There's something like that. I mean, the dark part of the human psyche. Yeah. And, uh, and I enjoyed it so much, which is, uh, I mean, that tells something about me too, I guess. <laughs> but um, I found that vocation there, mm. like coaching. Like I, I really, 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 it's not that I enjoyed it. It's like it touched me deeply somewhere. 
to right. see someone make progress every time almost brought tears to my eyes. And I mean, like, I just, like, I understood what I was doing. Like, this is what I'm doing it for. They're making progress. Like, when that moment comes in, they go, oh, I understood that. Mm. Like, and so right away, I was like, I like that more than competing. Like, this is obviously my life. And so it just kept on going like this. Then moved to the U.S. for Jiu-Jitsu and more MMA, go to Brazil, come back. I mean, I had a crazy life anyway, about five or I mean, six. I, I kind of feel like it's still, I mean, you're competing in a different um, discipline, right? You're competing right. in the art of learning how to coach people, how to deepen their engagement with the practice. Like, it's, it's almost like there's a big parallel there, I feel almost. Yeah, the art of learning is really what I compete at. It's like, uh, you know, like how good can I get at it and how fast can I do it? Because it's always mm-hmm. speed, right? So, yeah, so that, that followed me my whole life. There's still that nature hasn't changed, right? But, the, but then at some point, I'm opening my gym in Torrance in California. And this is the life I wanted. I have my, um, you know, private clients. I have a class on Saturday. It's fun. I'm helping people. I can see, like I can touch the people I'm helping. I, this is the life I wanted, not making money struggling but loving every second of it right yeah because you had and meaning behind it this there was meaning and you know like a more crossfitter start to get in because we're talking 207 208 so i'm actually old school crossfit and people come in and you start to see the same patterns on the shoulder issues or stuff like that where i was like well that's interesting if people coming from different background have the same issue then there's a pattern of movement that and no one seemed to talk about it and so I've been always an extremely curious person where I guess that's, that would be my greatest strength is that if I can't find the answer, at some point I'll be like, all right, well, then I'll do it myself then since I can't find the answer. And then I started looking for things and then look and finding some patterns and getting some results. And before you know it, like, so I start on the webcast podcast, I become almost like a co-guest because I'm there like, I've been there like 10 times, I think at the time. So whenever there's a hole, I jump there because my friend, our man, <laughs> and Scott and Eddie and everything. And it was awesome. And at some point, the Barbell Shrug, which at the time, Barbell Shrug podcast at the time was number one fitness podcast in the US, uh, wants to interview me. And I'm like, oh, cool. I'm going to get my 15 minutes of fame. And then I'll go work with CJ uh, and Invictus. And then I'll, and it'll be a good life, right? Mm. And that podcast blew up to something that, like, at least business-wise, like, you know, work-life, there was the day before, the day after. I kid you not. It was that big of a change. Yeah, it was a massive massive. explosion and exposure for what you do. Massive. And I thought everybody was going to steal the stuff and say, yeah, thank you. And then done in a week. I mean, like literally, I thought 15 minutes, I'm done. And not at all. The stuff blew up and kept blowing up. And then we're like, all right. So my right-hand man, Richard, started to go like, we should do seminars. I was like, yeah, let's do that. And then there's two in Torrance. And then that turns into, let's do a European tour. That turns into, let's, let's do a world tour. And then that lasts three years, four years. And then, you know, like things just kept going up. And as I went up, I started to gain confidence in my abilities to figure stuff out. Mm. And then I started to go into the nervous system. And then, and then, and then, and then, and then, and then. <laughs> Yeah, and then you go into some deep ass rabbit holes, but it's all. It, because it, I, I mean, you find the answers. Yeah, so right. Like, I'll do it myself. Right, and it's almost like a path gets paved into realms like physics or like, um, you know, right. like big, big fucking big labels, like quantum quantum theory, all this kind of stuff. Where it's like, 
you find a connection. There's a, there's a piece there that helps you connect a dot in whatever realm you're in, even though they might seem disparate to those who don't really, who see them as totally separate entities, right? Like silos, but you find some things, whether it's just even stimulating some creativity of how to solve a learning problem or actually getting tangible elements to then plug into whatever your understanding is. But yeah, that's a, that's a really cool story. And the, I can, I can definitely resonate with the whole momentum thing where it's like, you know, you end up going through a period where it's almost like a blur. You're like, how the hell did it get here? How the fuck did I get here from there? I don't even remember, you know, and then, but also it's like, if it's awesome, you just keep running with it. Oh yeah, obviously. But it's like, you know, you're no different the day before than you are the day after. Right. And yet the world is, Mm. And the world looks at you differently. So some people that slam their door in my face going like, we don't do bodybuilding, suddenly are calling me a genius. I was like, I'm the same guy I was yesterday that you didn't want to listen to, by the way. Right. Um, so what changed? Public perception, obviously. But yeah, it, it can happen. It's weird, like they tell you, but it's, it's sometimes it is true. It can happen so fast. Mm. And yet not so fast because it's been 20 years or plus. Like I was fascinated with quantum mechanics when I was 17. And, you know, like I read all of Nietzsche by the time I was 18, Freud by the time I was 19. So I was always a nerd and a geek, even though I don't look like one. But on top of doing the sport, so I was always a very curious person. It's just at some point, they all got together. And if I figure things out, it's because I stand on the shoulder of giants. None of this is mine. Like a lot of it are just things that I pick up, but maybe I'm a bit better at being broad in the things that I that I touch, but still, I stand on the shoulder of giants. There's just no no doubt there. Of course, I mean, you know, being able to make sense of the world is really a matter of stealing a lot from a lot yes. of different people to make sense yes. of things, right? If you steal from just one person, then you're just stealing. But if you steal from everyone, that's called learning. And you know, right. like Bruce Lee didn't invent kung fu was not like yes. one single thing. It was a co- it was a combination of many things. People don't sort of go deep enough to see that, but. Um, and then strong fit today is really, do you see it as just kind of an outlet to share your learning with right. your community? That's it, okay. That's it because um, a past that was very clear to me from the beginning was that we had to stop with what is called functional segregation. Like mm-hmm. if you look at the school system, we like if you want to learn advanced mathematics, you have to start with two plus two equals four. Like that's just the way it is, right? If you right. want to start with medicine, okay, what's the cell? We don't have to start somewhere. But that being said, at some point, you're supposed to put everything back together. So there's always any complicated subject that to be broken down, right. to be studied, which is normal. That's some functional segregation. But then at some point, you have to do functional integration, which means you have to put things back together. Because yeah. otherwise, you're missing the whole point. You don't understand what the context, then you're missing context, which is a exactly. problem. It's right. a big so problem. that a lot with biochemistry and everything, where they study things in a petri dish. And then they want they, it, they tell you it works in the human body. Well, mm-hmm. no, because the temperature in the human body is not the temperature in the petri dish. Or even if it is, there are conditions there that are not applicable. And so suddenly, the application that worked in a petri dish do not work in the human body. So right. now what? So now we make generalization that are false. So there's a number of issues like that that you find, especially when it comes to medicine, biology, or training, where I saw people decompose things into into the minutiae of things so they could sell, basically, Mm -hmm. so that they could have that very narrow niche and be happy talking about 83 versus 84% and all that thing, where really without talking about the human behind. And like we talk about performance, which is always, you know, about a number, like whether it's a 100 meter dash or whatever, there's always a number. But me, I was always the first one to raise my hands saying like, 
But if I'm really anxious or depressed, I can't perform, nor can I. Right. So then that has to be part of the equation on a coach. I can learn to swim in a pool, but if I go in the ocean, it doesn't work anymore because I'm freaking out and the energy system is different. Yes. Yeah, context is so important. And I think that's, like you said, medicine is like so reductionistic that what they actually extract from those reductionistic things, like you might be able to tease out one part of the puzzle, but if you forget to put that piece of the puzzle back into the thousand person picture to actually understand where it fits, you you essentially end up with useless information out of context. And it's not only that, but it's actually worse than useless because it ends up actually misguiding you to making poor decisions. And Um, this is usually what you see. You see a generalization made out of something that was true in such a specific context that yep. it cannot be taken out of that study or out of that context. Mm. You cannot make a generalization out of this. And yet it's constant. And so right. they'll, they'll tell you it's science, so we can redo the study. Yes, in that context, you just sure. can't apply it anywhere else because it's such a specific one. And you see that constantly. Yeah, and uh, you know, I'm, I'll be the first to say that human, uh, you know, studying humans is insanely complex. Like it's, it's not an easy task. <laughs> um, and it almost requires you to avoid, you know, one of the metaphors I use is like, okay, you have a microscope, you have normal magnification, you have 10 X, hundred X, a thousand X. There's nothing wrong with going into a thousand X once in a while, but you have to know the applicability of that is going to be far less than if you just like look at things on a macro perspective, even if you have a shallower understanding, but you have a broader context, I think that's much more appropriate. And like, that can be a, an explanation for why we're in such a mess right now with how we think we of health, both. right? We need both. Like, look, if you want yeah. to study a painting, we can go at certain corners of the painting and the why red, why black here and everything. But at some point, you have to take a step back, look at the painting and going, what is it? Is it a woman or a man? Right. Is, is there a dog there? Because when you go small enough, you can't tell me if it's red or black, but you can't tell me if it's a dog, if it's a man, if it's a woman or whatever. There is a step back that is needed. When it mm. comes to humans going like, if we talk about performance, for example, we cannot talk about even lifting weight and making a 20 pound jump on a, on a deadlift or whatever, calling it a PR, but not understanding if did it feel easy? Is it wrecking you for three days? Now you can't sleep or you can't train or did you hurt your back? Or I mean, like there's so many things that go into performance that we have to stop to be so t- deterministic. And to me, the main reason is, is because there is a capitalistic uh, point behind this. And yes. it doesn't go much further than that. To truly help the human, we have to understand humans. We're not training machines. You're not teaching the squat. You're teaching that person to squat. And that becomes yeah. a lot more complicated suddenly. That person on that day in that state, exactly. you know, like there's so, exactly. there's, there's so many variables in flux that it's like you really have to... You know, and, and there's nothing wrong. I, I think this whole uh, Descartesian approach of mechanistically breaking something down to understand the parts is okay, right? Like we use this. Yeah, I, I think it's important to get clarity of like, where am I even looking, right? And how can I isolate some variables to get some salient information from this without feeling completely like, what the fuck is going on? Because you have to start somewhere. Right. Yeah, the two plus two equals four is a perfect analogy, but. Um, but if you forget the other part, we fuck ourselves over. And it's like, this is, that is the big, I think, take home that I, that I see with sort of the landscape of health from where we're learning um, is like, we need to make, we need to, 
make sure we have at least a fundamental broad understanding, like even health professionals. You can be a health professional, but if you call yourself a health professional, you have a you should have a broad enough understanding of how all of the pillars of health interact. And you can have a deep specialty in your discipline, but you cannot be just a specialist with a single discipline, deep understanding and have no breadth of health because then your deep understanding ends up being misapplied. Um, right. And logical thinking is lost. Like for example, if we take mathematics and we say, three plus two equals five. So mathematics has a problem with causation always. And so, you know, you always hear like correlation versus causation, mm -hmm. but we have that problem with mathematics. Mathematics does not necessarily involve causation. Like people don't understand that. If I say um, three plus two equals five, for it to be correct in mathematics, that means that five equals three, three plus two. It is necessary that, you know, like that being a- Yeah, you have bi-directional. Yeah, it's, it has to work like that. In life, that is not true at all. Hmm. Like I can say three plus two equals five. It's true 100% of the time. Five equals 3.2. That's not true 100% of the, of the time. What about five equals four plus one? Right. Right. Well, I have a problem now. That's why you cannot uncook an egg. Hmm. Right. Yes. Because it's a, there's an arrow that works a certain way. And that arrow is causation. And it doesn't work. That arrow does not work in mathematics. So in that Cartesian approach to things cannot work. And that's what quantum mechanics is trying to teach us. It's not deterministic. So that way of thinking cannot work. So if I do three plus two equals five, I'm cool. But if for whatever reason, my thinking is wrong and I end up doing five equals three, uh, equals three plus two, I'm gonna fuck up everything because I'm gonna make a generalization while forgetting an entire infinity of other possibilities. And guess what? That's not causation. It doesn't work anymore. Now you have correlation. It's a humongous problem. Yeah, and I think part of it is the comfort of, of, of feeling certain about some sort of deterministic relationship, right? Like that's really comfortable. If you're a nutritionist, it's really comfortable to yes. think that if you tell someone to eat the right food, then you're good. But yes. you said something in a podcast recently that blew my mind up and it was like, what if you can't digest properly? What does the food even matter? And I was like, holy shit, that is a completely different view. And that's so important to know. <laughs> Right, and for example, like protein are actually hard to digest. It's uh, some of the hardest thing outside of a certain vegetable, but it's actually hard to digest protein. It's very expensive energy-wise, mm. right? So it was a simple question. Why are we talking about food ingested and not food digested? Right. Simple concept. What happens if I have protein I don't digest, falls into the colon, destroy the good flora, gut flora? So I was like, so that's a problem then? Yes. Yes. Okay, so when you're telling me to have 40 grams of protein per meal, what if I only digest half? Mm. And are there factors that, that are going to change my digestion? Turns out there is. Right. There's many, many, there are. There are many factors that, that and your, the state you're in is one of them. Because if you go toward the sympathetic state stressed out, you don't digest as well. I was like, well, that's a problem if you're going to ask me to eat red meat now, isn't it? Right. <laughs> yeah, so, back, back to the same thing. Context matters. Context, context is actually matters. king because otherwise information context. is useless. Yeah, exactly. So context is king. And nutrition of all places is extremely important. We have circadian rhythms. We have socialization or not socialization at dinner. All those things will come into play when it comes to digesting protein. So at, why are we not talking about this is my right. question. Yep. Yeah. I mean, we could do a whole podcast on food and maybe yeah. one day we will, but 
one thing I'd like to talk about and something that I heard from you, it was a story I initially heard from you probably like six months ago on a podcast and it's had a profound impact on how I think of, you know, like essentially the Foot Collective has turned into sort of like a health intelligence organization where we try and get a bunch of people together that agree on a protocol for learning, which we just call the manifesto of like, this is how we agree we're going to make sense of the world so that we at least have a protocol we're following and we're all on the same page. Um, and the story that you brought up was the one about uh, AlphaZero and Stockfish. Yeah. And, you know, AlphaZero being the AI from Google, Stockfish being essentially the most complete chess database uh, that was out there at the time. And in 2017, AlphaZero uh, destroyed, decimated Stockfish. And it highlighted the fact that it is not, you know, like processing versus information. And can you, can you maybe tell that story briefly? Because I think it's so powerful as a metaphor for the fact uh, that learning, the ability to learn supersedes the ability to have information and knowledge or have data. Right, right, right. It's, it was that. It was information versus knowledge. Like, um, so to, to give a context, right? Um, DeepMind, so it's a division that Google bought, right? It was coming up with a, it wasn't a chess engine. It was really a, a neural network. Uh, it's not an AI because those don't exist yet. But it was to find an, uh, an, a way for machine learning, a better way for machine learning, right? And that's what they were trying to develop. And one of the creators at DeepMind happened to be a grandmaster, a chess grandmaster. Uh, so, you know, super nerd uh, who got into uh, machine learning and all that stuff. So now we're going into neural network and all that thing. And at the time you have Stockfish, which is a long line of chess engines that have decimated humans. They are far, far superior to humans because by brute strength. They don't need to understand chess. They just beat you because you'll make a mistake and they won't. Right. Because brute strength. They can calculate without making mistakes longer than you can. Simple stuff. And so- They've essentially but, downloaded the brains and the moves and the patterns of hundreds of chess matches from the best humans in the world. Right. So they're, exactly. they're essentially so they, the combination yeah. of them all. Right, they have the tables of openings you know, that Gagad played, like the first 10 moves of each opening from Grandmasters. Uh, they have all the tables of endings, of, of game endings, that, that is very mathematical. It's all based on, um, on calculation. So that they murder humans for that one. So it's just a uh, database. It's a, it's a yeah, complete just, database. And the database of 100,000 games from Grandmasters. Right. So the, the database and the processing power, because remember, speed matters, obviously, because you have time frames during uh, chess games. Yep. Uh, so all that put together meant that you could not beat the computer. It was impossible, right? And then here comes uh, uh, DeepMind uh, that comes and start to create, actually, first the machine learning was used for the game Go. It's Which the, is more, the far more advanced than, than chess. Right. <laughs> or far so deeper, I guess. It's actually very complex in a different way, <laughs> but it's a very complex game to the point where they always thought the machine could never beat a human because you could never learn all the moves. There was just too many. There's more mm -hmm. moves in Go than there are atoms in the universe. So they were like, we can't, uh, <laughs> never work. Same. And here comes, so not at the time, not Alpha Zero, but Alpha Go, goes and beats the world champion of the game Go to the point that he retired. Wow. Because he understood, not just, so it was a memorization because he could not. So it was just, he understood the game. And so, AlphaGo was continued into AlphaZero that was applied to chess. So what's fascinating is how AlphaZero learned chess. He had no database, zero. 
The only thing he did is he played itself for four oh, hours. Like four, yeah, four hours. That's so crazy. By the way, so so you understand, he took all the powers of Google for four hours. Right. So let's it's be very pretty, clear. About it's that. pretty powerful. It was a massive <laughs> yeah. amount of CPU. Yeah. Like let's let's be very uh, clear on that. But what was interesting with that is that every single game that was played was discarded. Whether it was won or lost, I guess it since you play yourself, it depends on how you look at it, if it's a win or a loss. But every single game was discarded. The only thing that was moved forward was the algorithm. Hmm. Like if he lost a certain way, that okay, we put the game, we change the algorithm so it doesn't. And then now, would that be would that be Q learning? Is like the erasing yes. of irrelevant yes, information with more uh, more appropriate reinforced learning? Right, and with with that goes into Q learning, and there's some Monte Carlo in there. This is like the neural network that they've been de developing for a long time, right? So they they needed the Monte Carlo uh, engine because they were applying it to chess. Now we're getting into mm. uh, nerdy stuff, but the the fascinating area for me was that is like he never remember the game he just got better at each game so he just changed the algorithm to the point that alpha zero at the end after four hours had an algorithm that could be run on the laptop wow now he needed all the cpus in the world to get there but once he got there he was run on a laptop there was no more massive calculation required because he was just an entity and so after four hours he gets to play stockfish at the time world champion and they play 100 games. And you have to understand that when two top engines play each other, usually it's 99 draws and one win, maybe. Right. Right. And Alpha Zero beat Stockfish by 27 games. Didn't lose one. It was 27 that's and thing. drew uh, the rest, but won 27. And first of all, that is an insane result. And what was more insane is the way Alpha Zero won. First of all, he whooped Stockfish destroyed it i've seen 10 of the games that alpha zero won and he was an ass whooping it was he made it look like a child it was crazy it was insane oh. and but because he was making long-term sacrifice for positional advantage right that sounds like a human that's how you beat a computer normally they call that the horizon effect is you make stuff you complexity Right. Yeah, yeah. For the long term, then the, the, the complication becomes so great, even, even that computer cannot calculate all uh, all the possibilities and start to lose its, its core, basically. Mm. And so Alpha Zero uh, understood chess. That's the best way I can explain it to you. And he actually moved the theory of certain openings forward by trying wow. new stuff. Yeah. And everybody was like, oh, shit. <laughs> right. So... Yeah. The That's results amazing. just blew everybody's mind going like, what happened? Because that is not a computer winning. That is, that, that, those games were reminiscent of the what they call the romantic school of chess, where they were sacrificing left and right and getting stuff and everything, just with great defense. But there were ideas with Alpha Zero that Stockfish, Stockfish never understood chess. It just beat you through brute strength. Right. Alpha Zero understood chess and better than we do. And by the way, in four hours. Yeah, that's incredible. And the biggest, you know, insight for me with that is like learning is king. The ability to learn effectively, uh, especially in a world that's constantly changing. Like we are, we want to figure out how do we empower people with an, enough of an understanding that they can take care of themselves, right? Like this whole basic premise that like the only person who can get you healthy is you, right? The individual needs to take a high level of responsibility if we want to actually 
create a sustainable health system. Um, and my biggest take home was like, we just need to be really good at learning, right? Like universities are the stockfish. They have all the data, all the studies, all the stuff, um, but they're not learning. They're not, they're, they're hesitant to learn. Like there's so much bullshit associated with that. And like we were talking about before, the lack of context in the, within the realm of health is like, we can create a much more advanced understanding by just collectively learning. Like what are the essential principles that people need to know? And what are the friction points of them applying them in their lives? And um, yeah, like how, how do you apply some of the insights from that case into what you're doing? Like what's the biggest way that it affected you? What was very interesting about the stuff when you analyze is the fact and the ma main difference between the two systems of learning, right? One is memorization, the other one is learning truly, is one is based on objectives. That's stockfish, right? Like we're gonna, you know, a bishop is worth three points, a rook is for five points, so three is less than five. So it's objective-based. Whereas um, alpha zero was based on constraints, right? It was like, um, we want to win the game. Right. We're not going to have an objective of, yeah, we just want to win the game. And then every game is going to be a new game. So why is it inter very interesting? Because he's going to, we got a few years after that. So like uh, two years ago, three years ago, there was a book called uh, Why Great Greatness Cannot Be Planned. And it was explaining the development of what they call an AI. It's not an AI either. It's an algorithm, right? But that, for example, was trying to teach a computer to walk oh sorry you froze i don't know what you're oh, i can hear you you're frozen uh when i see you but i can still hear you so we can keep going hmm. oh sorry oh, there we go gotcha no, no, that's all good so and then they were trying to teach a robot to walk right and they were failing miserably because they were trying like mimic a human and everything and the robot was dragging his leg, it, it, it never worked. So what they did was they created what, what is called a novelty search. So what was that? Is they put a constraint, not an objective, not like this is what we want you to do, like they do in school and everywhere. Right. Instead, Just they try something like, different. Try, and that was the novelty search was you only have one job to do something you have not done before. That's it. So not random. Because whatever you do next is something you haven't done before. And what they realized is that the robot started to map the world. Right. Not just on how to walk, but how to do things in general. So what did they see? They see the robot eating shit 4,000 times. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like a baby. Yeah. Yeah. But then trial, every trial time, and error. Every time you go like, well, that doesn't work. Well, that doesn't work. Yeah. That doesn't, but they learn every time because why didn't it work? And then he started to map the, the world. And they realized that it took like throwing the legs forward to be able to catch yourself. And this is the algorithm that got the closest to human walking. Hmm. And it was based on novelty search. Do what you have not done before. Which right. in a way is what, how uh, Alpha Zero had learned. He had played itself. And every time going like, nope, not that one. Because if you look at it, he lost for four hours. Right, but every time learn something and get better at it until he faced right. stockfish and then realized that oh I can win. But so for me that was the that was the main takeaway. I mean there were many, but that was an important one was that objective versus constraints. That if you set an objective, you don't know where the system is going. You tell you're asking the system to do uh, I want to go there, but you don't know how to get there. Yeah, it's, it's impossible. Not, 
it's impossible. You can't draw the map before you go somewhere. It doesn't right. work like that. You have to be there first. It's yeah. Ilya Muerte in, uh, you know, in parts of the Caribbean. You can only go there if you've been there already. Right. So <laughs> it's right. right. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't work like that. Right. So they, there, there was a capacity to, instead of having an objective, having a constraint, which is that's where we want, we're going to go that way. And then right. after that, who knows? So there was an uncertainty, obviously, in that process that a lot of humans don't like because then it's not deterministic anymore. But that mm -hmm. is the foundational principle of learning, which means you don't know how to get there. That's goal setting means you fail until you get there. And that part of the problem is people are people. If you don't understand, you don't know what you don't know. And if you okay. currently think that you have answers for people, people are more keen to hire someone. Like you said, like this consumer, yes. this culture we have is like, we want the answers. And, but, and the funny thing is, is like, not only are the answers unknown to, to you or that person, cause they're not even you, um, by being given a false answer, it eliminates the impetus to learn, right? right. And even if it was somewhat of a, the right answer, if you didn't learn why that answer holds true, then it has virtually no applicability in other scenarios. And it's like that lack of carryover makes it useless because if one this variable changes, it's not true. And this is why antidepressants don't work because right. the idea of antidepressants, 60 years in, you would think by now we'd figure that out. Yeah, they had their chance. They fucked up. Like they, right. you, sorry guys, it's not working. But what they're right. telling you is we're gonna get you an antidepressor. It's gonna, it affects the excitatory system. You're gonna feel like you're winning. You start winning a little bit so that you can get ahead. And now we take it out and then you keep on winning. Except guess what? You have the pills, you win. You have no reason to fix your environment since right. now you're winning. So to your system, the environment is not a losing environment anymore. Hmm. So you didn't win shit. You learn that the losing environment you were in is a winning one. That's all we did for you. So what happens yeah. when I take the pills away? You go back to where you were, which is a losing environment because that never changed. So that's right. why you don't make progress on those fucking pills. And every time I have to up them and I can never take you off of it. Well, we get now to a world where psychiatrists, once they put you on a pill, first of all, do not know how to take you off and tell you not to do it anymore. Like I have so many clients yeah. coming to me to get off pills where their psychiatrists tell them, don't get off. Even then they know that they can't get people off pills. It's, it's the most irresponsible, unethical thing for doctors I've ever heard. Yeah. I mean, didn't they sign an oath? Like, where did the oath go? And like, doctors are smart people. So uh, to say that they don't, under, don't know this, you know, like I, I always think of health right now as there's a lot of good players stuck in a shitty game. And the game is being essentially written, is coded by money. And money often has perverse incentives that aren't aligned with human health. And, you know, this whole, you know, when you talked about antidepressants, um, it made me think of like, I think you mentioned it on a podcast once, the robot going through a maze where when it was objective-based, it got stuck in a corner. Antidepressants make us stuck in a corner. Exactly. And fundamentally, everyone knows that depression is not caused by a lack of pills. Therefore, a pill cannot solve the problem because that's not the problem, right? And it's like- And depression yeah. is not a disease in the first place. Uh, yeah. It's, it's a function. Okay, so I have a simple question for my psychiatrist. It's adaptive. People don't know it's adaptive. When you say that, they're like, oh, you've never been depressed. I, like, all, what, how do you define depression? And second of all, <laughs> let me just ask a simple question because people always get very emotional on that subject. Why would nature invent depression? Right. Just to fuck with us? No, it has a purpose. It always, there's the function. 
Right. So there is every same with anxiety. Same with anxiety. Function. Maybe you don't understand the function because you feel like shit, but that doesn't mean there is no function. There is a function to depression, just like there's a function to anxiety. Right. If we understand the function, then we can deal with it. Otherwise, we treat it as a disease, something you catch, which is trying to say more and more so that they can give you a pill for it. That is not working. The numbers are clear. 60 mm. years, 80, what do you mean? 5, 84, 85% of people still feel like shit while being on pills. The difference is they're not jumping. Yeah, it's unequivocal. Like there's not, it's not even up for debate. There's the, and it's, it's almost right. like, I heard someone say an analogy once that, um, depression or anxiety always starts as a whisper. So at the point where you get the whisper, you have two choices. You either put in earplugs or you listen to the whisper and you, and you experiment with how to change things accordingly. And pills are essentially a beefier and beefier version of earplugs. So it starts with a whisper, then it gets louder. Um, then it gets to the point where it's screaming at the top of its lungs, which is, you know, being, being ready to jump. But if you've had layers and layers of ear earplugs so that you literally have a soundproof helmet on with these antidepressants, as big of a dose as you can, then we have to, we have to open up a conversation saying that this is not, it is literally self-terminating. So when are we actually going to understand that like, we need to fix this because this is a problem where if there's actually no solution along it's the path that we're going on. Like we're stuck in a corner. <laughs> yeah, it's not working. Yeah. Guys, 60 years, it's not working. Yeah. We know. And we know. We just, we seemingly seem, we seem to give up because it's like, yeah, but there's money in it. So, so what? When was that ever, when was that ever a constraint of the system? We have right. to make money. That was never, I don't mind you making money, but that was never a constraint. Right. Once you put it as a constraint, and here goes humans, and be like, well, let's keep them. So now let's create a society where they're more stressed so that they need more pills so that we can make more money. So now you're, you're just feeding the equation going one way, and which is exactly what we're seeing. Yeah, like, I think, I think it's anxiety, like it's a disease. I'm like, it's a function. It's to drive you toward, it's a reaction to stress. If you don't change your environment, it's never going to go away. Yeah. And I think like fundamentally, if we don't decouple medicine from pharmaceuticals, then it's medicine will, until that happens, medicine will continue being the, one of the primary problems with health and not a, not part of the solution. And I think- And they, and they get away with so much like this. I mean, I if you look at medicine, that's the Western history and priesthood have always been very, very close, right? Yeah. It's a religion. And, I think of medicine as yeah. a religion. And well, because science has won over religion in the last century. Right, and the new religion is medicine now. Where priests are, uh, the new priests are doctors. Look at what happened with the un, unnamed, the one that shall uh, virus that shall remain unnamed, so you don't get black ball on your uh, podcast. Where Appreciate we are it. not allowed to question the institution, even if the institution changes its mind every five minutes, or start, we are not allowed to question. We are entering in a realm that is very close to the religious realm when it comes to. Uh, medicine and health and that is so dangerous yeah i did a post the other day where it said if, if you're not allowed to question it's not science it's propaganda or and, and like totally. we people get real uncomfortable when when they realize like yeah this is getting really squirrely with you know censorship or all those things it's like we're literally being impeded from making progress by people who seem to think that they're looking out for our best interests it's like so okay. fucked up um i don't but, know that folks i I, I've heard too much of that. Like I've heard that through the, the great leap forward in, you know, with Mao, uh, come on, the Bolshevik revolution, they said the same. He came out of the goodness of their heart and compassion for the working people. Uh-huh, 100 million deaths 
letter, where are we? Like, I've, I've, yeah. I am a bit tired of hearing people using compassion as yep. a form for obedience. And in yeah. that case, we're not asking to trust science. We're asking to, uh, to trust institution. Yeah. And I don't see why, because it's not like they have proven that they know what they're doing. Yeah, they have a shit track record. Like, you know, yes. if, if, you're, if the person you're going to for food advice is obese and has diabetes, like right. maybe it's time to find a different person to get advice from. Um, and this whole, that whole adage of like the path to hell is paved with good intentions, I think is very, yes. well, is very true right now. Um, what, I, what I'd like to, I'd love to hear your take on this. And I, I think this is something people underestimate um, or don't pay attention to, but it's the discipline. And I would say it's also an art of making extremely complex things very simple. And I, I don't think, I don't think people give enough credit for yeah. how hard that is, how mm -hmm. difficult it is. I don't by any means claim to have extraordinary skill in that, but I at least have an appreciation for it, which means I can kind of engage with that process, but maybe explain like, okay, when you take something like the nervous system and you give a, a, a simple um, framework for people to be able to understand the nervous system at a, at a simple level, um, that requires, uh, it's like an iceberg on steroids where all you're trying to do is simply give the tip of the iceberg so that people can actually, you have to know your audience. And if you know your audience and most people just, you know, don't have the bandwidth or the purpose or the desire to engage deeply with a, a like a learning process on a certain topic, because maybe they're not curious or maybe they just have so much shit in their lives that it's like, they don't have the energy or the bandwidth. Yeah. Maybe explain like what goes into that? Like, how do you articulate um, the effort and the energy that's gone into diving into a complex topic, developing a cohesive understanding, and then articulating the salient principles in a simple way. Like, explain me that wizardry because it's fucking incredible. Uh, right. Well, I'll start by explaining the work it takes, and then I'll tell you what the downside is when you're good at it. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Like kind that. of funny. <laughs> um, so. First of all, you're right in black like, people do not understand the work that it takes. It's like if you want to take a subject that is, let's say, the nervous system that is very complex, some functional segregation is necessary for white belts. Mm. Like it's like jujitsu. I can't uh, teach you jujitsu right away. Like uh, there's a very famous black belt when he got his black belt was asked, now what? Right. And he said, now I can learn jujitsu. Mm. That's because, right, and it was very powerful because what he meant by that is like now you have learned, you have memorized enough, you have enough experience mm -hmm. that you can be open to the art of jiu-jitsu and, uh, you know, flowing like water and all that stuff, right? So it's, it's like now you've mapped the terrain so you can actually like, explore and actually make things work. <laughs> right, and so, you know, like uh, a mouse, like you, you let it in a cage and at first it's almost paralyzed, it's so scared and he starts to walk into corners. What he's doing, really, it's exploring the area to know that he's safe. Right. And once he's done that everywhere, and then he does map the whole thing, then he starts to relax and then start to do things and everything. And really, that's how you learn. Is first, you map out the limits of that subject. And it's a very scary, obscure thing because you're trying, you have a, a lighter and then you're going into the absolute dark and then you try to open something. And then from there, you start to, go into uh you know exploring a little bit more and everything but if you want to have a true understanding of a subject the problem is usually you're going to have to get patterns from something else to come and get into that one mm -hmm. so that means that uh, if you want to go into the nervous system you have to understand 
So nervous system, let's say the peripheral nervous system, how you get information, how do you sample the world? Sounds simple enough, right? I'll, I'll be practical sure. so you see what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah I appreciate people that. People understand sympathetic, parasympathetic, right? So let me show you where the problem starts right away. Sympathetic, they tell you fight or flight, okay? Is that the same thing? Because it's considered, it's treated as the same thing from a technical perspective. I'm like, all right. But whether you're the lion or the gazelle, I don't think it, ma it makes the same thing. Right. Whether you're reaction. hunted or being hunted, I don't think it's the same. Right. So right away, you have a problem. But if we say parasympathetic is rest and digest, I'm like, okay, where's sexual act in the whole thing? Because uh, if it's true, because you get excited on the parasympathetic side, right? And orgasm is switching to the sympathetic. I'm like, okay, what about violence? A lot of people get excited by violence and sex. Most human cultures have talked about this. So where does that fit? So now we have a problem. Because if I go to art fight, normally it's vasoconstriction. That, that'd be a problem. So which one it is? You know what I mean? So right away, you start to face simple issues like with nutrition and digesting. So I'm like, all right. So the peripheral nervous system is sampling the world. I'm like, all right, but what does that mean sampling the world? Because we have our own senses. So does that mean just absorbing information? So are you telling me that the body is only reactive to the world? But if that's true, then we'd be dead by now because then you would absorb venom every single time. You would never learn. So there's a learning mechanism at play. Mm. Learning mechanism, make it turns out it's a prediction versus observation model where your system makes a prediction as to what it thinks is going to sample and then it samples and it defeats if there's a difference between the two. Right. So prediction versus observation means that you're sampling the world not for what it is, but what for what you think it is. Hmm. So that you can learn from it. And you have to be paying attention enough to actually notice incongruencies and want to. Exactly. And so is that, the, is that basically just Bayesian inference at a, at yes. a macro level? Exactly. So okay. it turns out everything is a Bayesian inference. <laughs> right. To the I micro, realize that. Yeah. To the micro, to the macro, everything is Bayesian inference, which, by the way, is science. Prediction versus observation. So it turns out everything is a Bayesian inference. It turns out your brain, the entire system is a Bayesian inference. Right. So that means that you create a universe. You live in a universe that you create trying to match the universe you actually live in. So you don't live in the universe you live in. You live in your best approximation of the universe that you live in. And everyone because has different approximations. Because that's what you sample. So right. basically, you have a Markov blanket. Your universe is a Markov blanket. So you live in an approximation of the universe. And then you see if that approximation fits and you, try, you, you do different one, like a million or plus a second. And then you try to find the one that matches the one that actually is the closest to the universe you live in. So is the distinguishing element of the Markov blanket inner and external? Always. So it's like a cell. You know, a cell has a membrane. Yeah. So if you look at Markov blanket for a cell is a membrane, which means whatever is inside gets to affect the outside through the membrane. And whatever is outside, gets to affect what's inside through the membrane of the cell. Right, so we have a Markov blanket, except it's our senses. Hmm. Right, and so we sample the world through a Markov blanket. So, but what is the world? The world ends up being information. Right, so now information, we're falling into quantum mechanics. Hmm. So suddenly, you started with a nervous system, 
And now you're trying <laughs> to understand what information is, which means something that is, you think does not have a physical representation has a physical effect on you. Mm. So where is it? Where is it then? Where is that information we're talking about? Because now we can go all the way back to Plato, who talked about that extra dimension where ideas are from. You know, how come a uh, seed of orange tree will be an orange tree and not a peach? Then we right. start to go into, you know what I mean? Like, and it's not, then you start to go into epigenetics. So suddenly, just out of the nervous system, you always end up hitting questions where you go, uh, yeah, okay, but what about this? What about that? What? And then you just keep going further and further. So you're going to have to have a decent understanding of the entire thing for me to have the proper view of the peripheral nervous system. Right. And so now when I say fight and flight, I got a problem because I know it's not fight and flight. I know it's far more complex than that. Mm. And because fight and flight depends on then my view of it. What do I mean by that? Hunting or being hunted? I'm a black belt in jiu-jitsu. I go to my gym. I'm being punked. There's a white belt right there, but turns out he's a black belt. They're just punking me. I spar with him for five minutes. I'm winning, but I'm like, Jesus Christ. What it, does it feel like a win? Hmm. No, it doesn't. Because I'm struggling so badly against the white belt, it did not, it's not meeting my expectations. My prediction and my observation don't match. Right. Which so there's also a like source that. of discomfort. Like when your predictions yes, and exactly. your word model exactly. don't match, I think then you have, you're left with a decision, right? It's like, okay, what do I, and I guess the Markov blanket is this distinguishing line. It's like, do I want to change my model or, or of the world? Right. Exactly. Or do I want to change? Exactly. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. Right. Okay. So that's called a somatic error. Okay. So you have three choices. You can ignore the, what's happening. You can change the prediction or you can change the world. Those are the ways. And the, predi so the prediction is you. Right. So imagine my arm is bent, I, but I say my arm is straight. Okay. okay. I got three ways to change the problem. I can not look at it anymore. I can go, no, my arm is bent, or I can extend my arm. All allow me to deal with the somatic error. Right. But so only that, one of those options allows you to deal with it constructively. <laughs> that, after that, we can have that talk. Right. Which, which one is which? But sometimes you cannot change the world because, and then therefore changing your prediction comes in. Mm. Sometimes it's necessary to know that you were wrong. And then so you can work. So there are, there are cases where some are more interesting than others. Okay. Hence the complexity of it. But then that's an interesting conversation, right? Is movement a better way to make the world become what you want? Yes, but so that somatic error, to go back to that, was shown that this is the base of anxiety. Hmm. The higher the somatic error, the higher the anxiety. Why? Because your body is trying to bring you to a state where you get to extend your arm. Yeah, and I think it's almost like we were never taught about anxiety or depression. I think this is like, the if, if you don't know, that alone is anxiety provoking because something's happening to me Right. right. Not, not, not like I, I'm not happening with it. This is not, that has zero involvement with me. It's happening to me that, you know, the whole aspect of being a victim to the circumstance of the world and that automatic, if that's your assumption that I'm a victim to the circumstance of what the world is putting onto me, how the world is acting on me, you eliminate even the option uh, that you can 
bi-directionally affect that, that thing. Like you can actually make a difference right. there. All you have left is what else from the world can I have to reduce right. this discomfort? So that's the bias. But even at, the, at that, even before we get to the bias, we get to the moment where you created the universe in which you're wrong. Hmm. Like you just got shocked into, that's not what I thought. If that's not what I thought, I could die from it. I need to learn from this because next time right. I might die. Hmm. Anxiety number one. Then after what you're talking about, bias comes in saying, yeah, but that's supposed to be like that. I right. should be able to do this. So now that's a dangerous one as well. So then now there's more anxiety because I'm hanging on to my prediction, even though the observation is telling me that's not true. Right. Right. So now you have a problem because that tells you that perception, prediction is a state. But your body can be in a different state from observation with the world. So that those two states have to match. Otherwise, you're in trouble. So how do you, <laughs> I would love to know what your opinion is of the, the psychologist who has a patient that comes in with anxiety or depression, is given a pill and is not getting better. So there's an incongruency. Either they're not expecting the pill to help or they are expecting the pill to help and they sense an incongruency with what's actually, with the result, right? Because the result is not matching right. the, the, I guess, understanding or the um, no, no, no. expectation. what you call by result because okay, and that's okay. where the trick is. And that's so where it's symptom. The result is getting mitigating exactly. symptoms. Exactly. Mitigating ah, symptoms. That's right, the key. Right. And that's the constraint they put in place, those fuckers. This is how they're lying to us. They yeah. have managed to change the constraint into mitigating symptoms. Right. Not solving problems. Not and actually, solving, it's financially incentivized to yeah. not solve the problem. Which yeah. I, How yeah. do you make money otherwise? Yeah. Because that's not the constraint in place. So mitigating symptoms is where they justify their job. Well, it's like, I, so, so I was trained as a physio and like that exact same game theoretical yes. framework is applied to physio. If I yes. suck at my job, you come see me with shoulder pain. I don't, yes. I, I mean, what's even more fucked up is I'm not, I might be a good player, right? I might be a um, person with noble intentions. I went to physio school thinking this is the path to be able to help people with their physical health. Yes. I learn how to diagnose oh. and yes. treat symptoms. I do not learn about root causes. I do not learn why these problems happen. The actual fundamental belief is instilled that the human body is flawed and I exist to help fix it. Exactly. So exactly. it's like, you got to go deep, deep down to know like, what is the deep programming that wasn't even explicitly told to me, but was what everything was the belief system that everything revolved around in which, through which I was taught. So you come to me, you have shoulder pain. I do what I was taught. In fact, I might even be really, really good at doing what I was taught. Um, and so my incentive is to see you repeatedly to control the symptoms, but not actually not only do I not know how, but financially, it's incentivized for me to see right. you repeatedly because I get paid per visit, not for the outcome. Customer. Yeah. It's really fucked up. And I saw this blatantly firsthand. And it's like, it's so messed up. And, and, you know, I think fundamentally, we have to revisit these base assumptions and change completely the way that people are, um, right. the way and that health way, professionals you, are trained. You made a very good point by saying the human is flawed. This right. is the base of medicine today. Like right. the human body by itself is flawed already. So without us, we, everybody would die, which is why all doctors have a God complex. Right. Because without them, we'd all die because the body is flawed. So when you come with a problem, it's well, of course. There is no yeah. root cause since the body is flawed. Yeah, the root cause is that I'm not helping you yet. <laughs> right, so th but that, if the body is flawed, that means there are only symptoms. There is no right. root cause. They, they right. only exist symptoms. And my job is to mitigate because the body is flawed means I cannot remove them. Mm. 
And yeah. So, so then like, they have the perfect business. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really, I mean, we've, we literally have created uh, an ecosystem, a financial ecosystem around disease that literally earns, spends more money than the U S national defense budget. Like that is, I, I think that might be a good contextualizer for people. It's massive. And so there's so much forward momentum and there's so much money in this system that almost like the way I picture it is, okay, if medicine is a religion, God is medical school, the institution of medicine, but pharmaceutical companies are the people who have God as a puppet in their hand that are actually controlling what God teaches the priests to teach to the people. And so it's this like really big system where it's like, okay, well, if we go to the absolute core of it, um, we need to, and, and it should be blatantly unethical to be coupled with an industry that is only has a job if there are diseases to treat. How the fuck is that not really obvious? Right. And, like, and they, they get away with murder because we keep promoting that image of the doctor, you know, like the in a village that is helping the people there, that good soul and stuff like that. That world has changed. There's some yeah. left, but oh my God, they're in the, they're in the minority. For right. the ma majority of it now, it's just a business. How many times in the US did we see those stories of pharmaceutical companies paying for trips and holidays and stuff? And that's the reality of the world today. You want to hang on to what Hollywood version of that, that's, that little village doctor is? Like you're mistaken. That is not what is happening right now. Right now, they, have, they just deal with insurance and they deal with pills and they're just legal drug dealers. Yeah, I saw it firsthand. And it's, you see the invisibleness of it firsthand. So I worked in a big physio clinic. It was a surgical center. And you would have these in-services where drug companies would come in and literally break, like you'd have a random dude that was talking, like a naturopath would come in and say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share what I do. And then you have a company that makes uh, like an injection or like a, like Synvisc or something. They will come in and bring steak and sushi to all the doctors. And I remember asking one of the surgeons, I'm like, don't you feel like this is like a little bit sketchy that we get treated this every week? And he's like, oh, I, I know what they're trying to do, but it doesn't affect my judgment. And, then, and, and it, it, like that measure of comfort, it's like if that happens enough time, enough times, there is a sense of owing. There's a sense of indebtedness that I don't think, I think it's convenient to ignore for them to ignore that. Like yeah. that make that saying him saying that made him feel better. But it didn't yes. change my opinion that that is subtly impacting him. And like every week this would happen. And I'm like, this is crazy. <laughs> like who this doesn't see this? Ethics in, in, normally we had ethics in politics or stuff like that. Because when you over time, of right. course, you'll feel slightly pushed. Sure. That's why I never, ever uh, endorse anything. Because sooner or later. Yeah, it's a slippery slope. Eh, you might have to agree with something or you might have, you know, and it, it always starts small. I mean, and then before you know it, you go there. So, yeah, th this is the, the, the main issue that I see with, with anxiety and all that stuff is there is like, it's obviously getting worse. It's not getting any better. You can tell like it's like health in general, right? Like, yeah, yeah, for sure. Going a certain way. And there is absolutely even, there's not even a try to explain what anxiety is. Hmm. Yeah, there's no effort to understand it. We do not know what, fine. I know what it is, but there is no effort to explain what anxiety is. So to go back to what we were talking about. So how do you explain something simply? Well, you need to understand what the thing is first. Right. The deep understanding of why something happens. Where does the medical stuff? He goes very, he goes so deep that he actually meets quantum mechanics at a certain level. There's a book 
by Paul Davis called The Demon in the Machine that I recommend for everybody. It's okay. very thick enough, but it's a uh, mind-blowing. He has mind-blowing ideas into this where to, to be able to explain something correctly, you have to understand it deeply to a certain core that requires way past your specialty. Hmm. Yes. So to get to that art, it requires your curiosity that will span many different subjects. So that means time, by the way, and energy, a lot more than people understand. Now, do you think that there's a role for, okay, say you have a group of 100 doctors and they come out to you and say, Julian, I wanna, we want to better be able to serve our patients that have anxiety. Do you think, like, is there a role for a knowledge worker whose role is to go deep and be able to be a resource for the people on the front lines? Like, is there a delineation there? Do you think every doctor has to have, obviously they should have a understanding of anxiety, but where's the threshold where, you know, frontline people have a different subset of problems to solve on a daily basis than the person who needs to be able to distill the wisdom that guides their decisions. So like, you know, that's kind of what we're trying to do with the Footner program, which is basically this experiment in distributed learning. How do we take, you know, we have about 160 people now, we have some doctors, physios, chiros, random people that are just like parents, accountants. And so we have all these different perspectives and we're trying to figure out like, what is the role for a core of people who find purpose in sense-making and how can we create a system whereby those people are compensated to do that work and then to distill the understanding to the people who can apply that work on the front lines? Also with a feedback mechanism where the observations and the assumptions can be compared on the front lines to say, well, I tried, I've been trying this, but it's not working. You know, like all these systems of feedback loops to facilitate sense-making, you know, where's the line of like, how so, deep does a doctor need to go? Let's look at history. Right. Let's look at physics. It's a simple one. Okay. Look at what happened in World War II. Right? The bomb, all that stuff. Physics won. Mm -hmm. Out of all science, physics won in World War II because he built a bomb. He built a rocket ship. We went to the moon. Physics won. What happened at that moment is the, especially the army, pulled so much money into it. You went from an Albert Einstein to a Yale format or Harvard or stuff like that. Where, mm -hmm. So you went from one dude, exceptional in a small room looking for the truth, to a team of 60 people that had only one job, was to produce something. Right. And, you know, so you, you create a bureaucracy there of producing something. But so it's an outcome. Be, that's an that's yeah, objective. Objective-based. Whereas so Einstein is just like, I got to play with a certain set of constraints to figure shit that's out. Right, which is, let's find, let's find the truth, right? And then wherever it is, I'll go there to an objective sure. base, which is I need a bureaucracy in place to produce. But if you look at history, science is not a thing. It's a bunch of geniuses that change the course of the world, usually at 90 degrees, going left out of the blue. And then we keep going that way. And then you got all those people jumping behind that guy. And then by the way, they do that by proving themselves wrong. That is their, that's like their constraint. That's fiability yeah. is the number one quality of science. Yeah. And so the guy goes left, right? And then everybody follows that guy. And then the next guy goes right and everybody follows that guy. But if you look at the history of mankind, that's how science has worked. It's one dude, really smart, just obsessed with finding a truth or something and then establishing some parameters and then a bunch of people coming after trying to figure out the math. Mm -hmm. 
But see, that's been history all the time. What we are stuck now for the last 80 years is that mass producing objective-based industry funded a lot usually by the military that was created out of the geniuses of all the guys between 1880 and 1920. Like there was a golden age of physics right before mm. World War II where you had Schrodinger, Einstein, Niels Bohr. Uh, there were so many, like I can't even, I mean like, like there was a gold plank uh, late 19th century. Like there was really a golden age there where we're still figuring out the math of what they're talking about. But if you look since then, there's been few and far between uh, few and far with, uh, with geniuses even in physics, it's far worse for the medical world. We are getting right. really good at technical stuff, but we suck at, at going forward when it comes to big, important things. And so if we look at history, what we need is we need those Albert Einstein. We need people that are, you just give them a chalk and a chalkboard and let them loose. Yeah. Remember that Albert Einstein discovered this stuff being in a, in a pattern in a uh, sorry in Zurich in a, as a pattern pattern clerk in his office looking at the window with his mind going toward the theta brain theta right. brain waves and figuring shit out when he was 25 and that's what he got his Nobel Prize on but he was a, a pattern clerk in Zurich if you had shoved him into a laboratory asking him every two weeks to come up with a product yeah history is different if that happens history is different Look at, look at the great minds. Look at Galileo who had to fight the Catholic Church. Look at uh, Isaac Newton, who was at least at least as, as perjure. Even Da Vinci. Um, right, Da Vinci, all those guys, they were all rebels. They were yeah. all guys that's like, fuck off, let me do my thing. Yeah. <laughs> let me just rock the world. And they did. But that's the history of mankind. Not this weird idea that we have science now that it's, because we still think there's Einstein out there. Most of them, there's a few, but few, few and far between. And Most oftentimes they're not, they're not the people you hear from also. It's like they're, they're not, yeah. the world today is myopic on the people sure. who, like yeah. the incentive structure of how to be heard is completely against the people who are actually doing the deep exploration that's required to further everything, right? And like even that question of where's the delineation between what a physician needs to know and what the role of a knowledge worker is to make sense of things. It's like, I've heard you use this uh, dichotomy before is exploration versus exploitation. It's like we stopped exploring and all we've done is gotten tunnel vision to exploit what we knew at the expense of exploring what we don't know, which is causing us to follow the wrong path. So we yeah, need to balance that. We have enough, but we don't right. because there's still fundamental questions we cannot, we don't have answers to. And so at some point we're running out of space, out of what we mm -hmm. got toward getting further and further where we are starting to make deep, profound mistakes because of a false understanding of a bunch of stuff. Like Tate was a good example where a guy makes an experience in 1920 Hundred years later, we still treat lactate as a waste product. It turns out it's a very important fuel, right? So a hundred yeah. years because the dude made a, made the wrong conclusion out of an experience. And the longer you go down the wrong path, the more difficult the unlearning process is, right? And oh, like one of the biggest things we hear, yeah, we oh hear from God, people. It's so hard to break in this Footner program that we have. I think it's really it's like the the more expensive your degree is the more it's actually a process of unlearning than learning right to the to the accountant mother it's a learning journey where we've just kind of curated like a subset of things it's like here's some information 
These are the experiments you need to try. Let us know what you find. We'll compare it together and we'll figure this shit out. But for the people with medical degrees, it's like, hmm, I have to backtrack a lot in, in like my perspective and my understanding because there's a lot of conflict between these two or, or it, it can't possibly be that simple. You know, this is, this complexity is important, but that's misplaced precision. And so it's like, I think the, the unlearning process is so fucking hard for people. The cognitive bias, the dissonance is right. so difficult to like, you and know, look, yeah, get on that, that's a very important part. But on that, if you look at that, cause that goes to adult learning. Adult learning is not child learning. It's different. Like adult learning, they need to state a problem to learn. So to mm. answer your question directly, where's the, the, the delimitation between the two, right? How do we fix that? Adult learning is different than kids learning. Adult learning requires a problem to solve. It's uh, problem-based learning is state the problem. Uh, it's neuroplasticity 101. You need arousal and focus, which means you need to state a problem for an adult to be hooked to want to do something about it. Right. So you have all your doctors that are doing something. What we need is someone to come and say, hey, try that one. That goes against their set ideas. And then they would go, well, that worked, but I don't understand how. Why is it working when it goes against what I said? Now they have a problem to fix, and now we could start a conversation. But me coming saying, I have a fix for anxiety will never work. Right. It can only work if I go, your fix for anxiety doesn't work. And let me prove it. Then you will listen from me. But right, because say, by saying it doesn't work, work insinuates a problem, still exists, exactly. right? Exactly, and that's the only way you would listen. But that's literally how the adult brain works. It needs a problem to be stated for it to actually go because it needs the arousal of the problem to be able to move forward. So, and, and what you were saying before, you know, I think there's an old saying that says, it's better to have the wrong solution to the right problem than to have the right solution to the wrong problem. So maybe part of what we need to do is redefine the problem because the problem is not controlling symptoms. <laughs> right, and for example, we have a problem that no one seems to be talking about. What is anxiety? Can we start there? You know that the Dutch, because I live in Holland, don't have a word for it? Interesting. How interesting is that? Yeah. So what is anxiety? Because everybody's like, oh, I know. Really? What is it? <laughs> right. So you're going to go, it's fear. Really? Because I have anxiety when I go see a movie. I wanna... Is that anxiety when I go see a super, you know, like a movie, Marvel or whatever? I'm super excited. I go see it. Kind of anxious a bit. So yeah. is it just being nervous? Okay, but what does that mean? Right. What does that mean being nervous? Why am I nervous? So because you're only anxious about the things in the future. You're never anxious about things in the past. Hmm. Right. So that means that anxiety by necessity is a driver since it's in the future, not in the present ever. So you're worrying about something that's going to happen. All right. So is it fear based? Well, what does that mean? You know what I mean? Like right away, you run into issues if you just state the problem this way. And I think asking questions, like one of the questions I started to ask everyone I can, and I want to ask you at some point is like, how do you define health? Um, and, and it, it does two things. It shows you like, what are the common narratives of how people define, can people even define health, right? Like, because a lot of times it's an extremely simplistic, um, answer or simplistic structure to like an insanely complex topic. Um, but it also tells you where, what are people's current frameworks or, um, understanding of health? What does health even mean? 
right? Like the idea that we're, we're trying to solve a problem. And if you even just take the definition of said problem, you ask 10 people, you get 10 different answers. It's like, well, we probably should find some sort of cohesive understanding so that we can agree on the principles of the problem so that we can find our individual solutions, but come back and share that knowledge with some overlap of like, how is this relevant? Um, Right, but that's, for example, and that's totally right. Like, for example, to go back to what is anxiety, if you say that while I was being nervous, I'm like, okay, what's the scale? One to 10, and when does anxiety start? Two, three, four, who decides? Hmm. Did we decide? Like, there's no scale. Right. There is no explanation of it. So how are we supposed to deal with it? So exactly to your point, everything is like this, where I'm like, can we start with that first before we come up with a pill? Right. Can we start <laughs> up with pills before we come up with a disease? Yeah. Like otherwise, it's kind of weird. Yeah. Or can we create pills and then create a disease that the pill solves? That. It's like that shit happens honest, we have done that many <laughs> yeah. times. Yeah. That's a red flag. Most people don't know about that. Yeah. Like um, ED, for example. Yeah, and it's like it's so it's so squirrely. Like, and I think these problems can be solved if we have open and honest conversations without bringing it, without being married. You know, like one thing I've started to do is think of everything in terms of probabilities. So I'm fairly certain, I'm not fully certain about anything. I'm fairly certain about certain things. I'm fairly certain about gravity until I see a truck floating or whatever. But the whole idea of thinking in probabilities instead of mirroring myself to certain perspectives or beliefs means that you're constantly flexible and dynamic. And all you're doing is fluidly trying to figure out is this the right probability right now? Right. And, I, and, and people just, all they do is they go into a conversation wanting to prove why theirs is right without any desire. Like I think in medical school, they should have a course on how to have good disagree, generative disagreements. That the core, first of all, logical thinking second, and third, that the world is not deterministic. Look, like quantum mechanics has proved it has proven it, the world is not deterministic. Can you expand on that? Because number one, when people say, I think when you say quantum mechanics, you lose a large portion of yes, people. When but, uh, you say deterministic, I don't think people have enough understanding of what that means. Yes. So can you simplify deterministic and yeah. how, how people yeah. would interpret that? To do it simply, that, by the way, I have to explain the downside of speaking things simply. Uh, <laughs> yes, yes. Like that's term. important. Um, so if we look at it, like the world changed under Isaac Newton was probably the greatest genius the world ever had, where he established the laws of movement in a way that the world became very simple. Everything goes in a straight line until it is pushed sideways, until a force is applied to it, either stops it or makes it move. That's, and he had laws of movement, and then the second law of the thermodynamics and that is so important to physics and things like this. For him, it was a simple world of A causes B. That's in that sense deterministic of like you have the A starts moving. So you have the conditions defined by A. We can uh, explain what B is going to be. Right. So what do I mean by that? Like we know the ellipse of the moon around the earth. We can calculate where it's going to be at a year from, uh, a year from now. But we can also calculate the way uh, where it was a year before. Right. That's deterministic. We can make all those calculations. So uh, Isaac Newton calculates all that. And we end up in the 18th century where very famously something said, everything to be invented has been invented. And then like you have to understand that before, so about the end of the 19th century, physics is a game of de decimals. Like we understand all of physics 
It's just a matter of how many decimals after that uh, comma you want to go. Okay. Like pi, like, you know, shit like that. Great. All right. And here comes quantum mechanics, where, which is a branch of physics. Then suddenly, when you go small enough, none of those rules apply. Like, so suddenly you realize that an object can be in two places at once, that uh, there are properties of uh, quantum mechanics that makes the world weird. What do I mean by that? I'm gonna explain very simply with a double slit experiment, right? Okay. This has been done forever. Uh, these videos of it you can find on YouTube from the 1920s and things like that. So you have a wall with a hole, a hole two holes right next to each other. You're gonna take a light and you're gonna put, you're gonna shoot a photon in each hole. So naturally, what do you end up with? You're gonna end up with the photon hitting the back, another wall behind, and obviously leaving a mark in a straight line with that hole, right? So you would end up with one gun, two holes, two marks on the wall behind it, except you don't end up with that at all. You end up with five marks of photons, even ones that are behind the solid wall. Mm. So you go like, well, how is that possible? Because it turns out that the light is a wave. So it interacts with itself. So it's like, like the light, they all go into the hole and then they start spreading outside of the hole and then it interacts with itself. And then therefore you end up in different places than that straight line from the gun to the hole, to the wall. Mm. So you go that will Okay, so then you simplify the experiment. You take that gun that shoots the photon and he shoots one at a time, one hole or the other. You don't know which one, but he's gonna shoot. So you expect then you're gonna see same thing, one spot and everything. And you still see the five spots, which means like a photon is interacting with itself. Mm. What does that even mean? <laughs> Yeah. Right. And so then it gets weirder, which is you put an observer that can tell you which hole the photon went through. When you do that, you end up with only two spots on the back wall hmm. because you looked at it. So what does right. that mean? We still don't know, by the way, to a degree. Right. The observer paradox is still a problem. So you get into weird stuff like that with quantum mechanics. So it's, it's a very, it's a realm of a very, very small. So for example, one of the stuff that is so, so weird with that, with particles, is called entanglement. So you have two particles that are entangled. What does that mean? Does that mean they have a relationship with each other? Can be small or strong. So if you have a very strong entanglement relationship between the two particles, it does something interesting, which means those particles spin, like one way or the other. If I look at a particle and I see that the particle on the left spins one way, that means the other particle spins the other way. Right, so that means that I can take those two particles and I know something about them without knowing anything about them, which means I know if one spins one, one way, the other one spins the other. So it's deterministic in that sense. It's Well, once I look at it, but right. I don't know which way the one on the left spins until I look at it. Okay. But it doesn't matter. I, even if I don't need if I don't see the one on the left, I know that whatever the one on the left is, when I look at it, the one on the right will go the other way. Okay. So I can know everything there is to know about a system without knowing everything that is in the system. Because to know the whole system, I just need to know what the left is doing. 
Hmm. That violates so many laws of physics, first of all. <laughs> then it gets even weirder. I take those particles and I put them on the other side of the uni universe. Okay. Completely separated. One is on each side of the universe. I look at the one on the left of the universe and it spins left. It spins one way. Then I know the one on the other side of the universe spins the other way. Sure. How does he know? Hmm. I know that. How does particle knows that? Because how do they yeah. communicate? Because then they communicate faster than light then, hmm. which is not possible. So how does that work? We still don't know, but it's called a physical entanglement and we have problems with that. Interesting. Right. Yeah, so so quite, to... I mean, there's never not going to be questions to answer, but it's, it's also really important to acknowledge that we don't have all the answers. I think no, it's... There's, there's fundamental answers we don't have because most of that stuff violates the laws we have. Hmm. So this seems that, and that's called the Copenhagen interpretation, where there are laws at the very small and there are laws at the very big, so like Einstein's um, uh, general uh, equation, so the relativity, mm -hmm. does not work at the, at, the, um, at the very small level. And the very small level does not work at the very big level. So this seems that there's a very small world and a very big world. And there was Einstein in Schrodinger got in a major fight with Niels Bohr and his students over that. It's called a Copenhagen interpretation. Unfortunately, uh, mm -hmm. Einstein lost because Niels Bohr was saying it doesn't matter. And Einstein was like, fuck yeah, it does. <laughs> because you end up with the problem of the paradox of the observer, which means an observer changes reality then. Because by looking at the particle, I know which way it spins. But if I don't look at it, it can spin either way until I look at it. That's Schrodinger with the cat. Is the cat alive or is the cat dead? That's where it comes from. Interesting. So there's a because, limitation. Yeah. There, we hit a limitation that creates, uh, exactly. that eliminates a sense of like fundamental certainty across the board. Because exactly. it's like the human is, is the limiting step there, right? Right. And so, but what happens if a rabbit looks at it? Does that still count? Is it still an observer? Yep. Did the universe, so you're telling me the universe wasn't a universe until the humans looked at it. Hmm. So what happens before there were humans? There was no universe. Right. So now we have a problem. And that's the cat libel dead with Schrodinger, which means he put it in the box that, that, that is linked to uh, the same, I think, with certain particles, like and either be here or, or not. And then if you open the box, then, the cat then, is dead, but was he alive before that then? Right. And Since you didn't a, look at it yet. And it's an unanswerable question, I guess. And that's the problem that uh, Schrodinger was saying. He's like, are you telling me that it depends if that the cat is alive or dead based on how I, what I see? Right. That's a huge problem. And that's a Copenhagen interpretation when Niels Bohr was like, who, who cares? <laughs> okay. That's, so, yeah, that's that's an easy way out, but it's also not like it's exactly. We're just an not easy way out, right? So now yeah. you run into the problem that at the very small, the world is not deterministic. That particles pop up out of nowhere. So, for example, going back to my double slit experiment, that means that you have five spots, right? That means that the particle can be at any anywhere at any time until I look at it, and so I don't know where it is until I look at it. Hmm. Once I look at it, I know where it is. But until then, it can be anywhere. Right. And, and what you see determine like, you almost, 
you take your interpretation and it's easy to regress that back to make sense of it, but it doesn't actually tell you what the what the essential truth is. And like it's to, to real where it is until you look at it, it makes no sense. Right. It and to reel to it all somewhere. back. Yeah. To reel it all back with deterministic is like basically if you know A, it doesn't necessarily immediately mean that B is it's going to happen. Right. So right. deterministic means the photon leaves the gun, goes through the hole, hits the wall. Simple. Like we know where the photon is, we can calculate it. Hmm. We know where it is, except in quantum mechanics, that's not true. That's called the wave theory that Schrodinger came out. Is he can tell you where the probability of where the electron is gonna be. And so the more you do it, the more likely it is to happen, which means if you have a high enough number, the probability becomes so big that most likely it's gonna happen there. So let's run through uh, a simple scenario of uh, a problem someone has. Yeah. Um, I have type two diabetes, right. and the deterministic view of what uh, of of what that means for me versus if you take a, a point a perspective where it's not deterministic, what how that would change uh, the action step towards solving said problem. Simple, simple, simple. simple. Uh, insulin. So talking about that. So I absorb sugar, I get an insulin response. Easy enough, right? right? Okay, there's a major problem with that. If that was true, we'd be dead because you will absorb venom every time and die. Because mm. what you're assuming is that the body is reactive, that he waits for the, the whatever it is that you eat to come into the body, starts to break it down, analyzes what it is, and then reacts. So that's right. a deterministic perspective. That's a deterministic perspective where the body is reactive, except it doesn't happen like that at all. What we have is we have something called a cephalic insulin phase response which means that based on uh, visual uh, smell and taste, right? So not based on what the food is, based on what it looks like, smells like, and tastes like, your right. body will already start to produce insulin or not. Before you even eat it. As you eat it. So you put it in your, yeah, by the way, just you. So as you look at it, you're already producing insulin or not. Right. As you taste it and it tastes sweet, the body understands sugar starts to produce insulin. So now that's, that, pro, that presents a problem with sweeteners because I have a sweet taste that does not have the nutrient content associated with it. So it creates so an incongruency. I'm, right, I'm producing insulin for sugar that is not coming. So mm. now I got insulin for nothing. First of all, it creates problem because there's insulin that I'm gonna have to get rid of that's gonna create problem with insulin sensitivity because now I'm producing it uh, too much. And on top of it, my body does not understand when and where to produce insulin anymore correctly. So what mm. happens the next time I have something sweet that has sugar in it? Now I don't have enough insulin and I'm screwed. Yeah, you've primed your system with a, with a faulty understanding, essentially. Right. And on top of it, now that sweet means that amount of nutrients, Right? I know that if I want that amount of nutrients, I need that amount of sweet. Hmm. Right. Now I've changed that, which means for that amount, that amount of nutrients, I need way more sweet, which means next time I'm going to crave more of it because I think I need a larger quantity to get the nutrients that I'm looking for. So when you get sweetener with no calories, the body is going to crave carbs all day because he's still waiting for it because he started all reactions necessary to deal with it. Wow, that's, that's yeah. called a cephalic insulin phase response. Okay. Guess what? Salty, sweet, sour, all of those have the same systems. 
you expect fat, you expect sugar, you expect nutrients that is dictated based on what it tastes. That's how you survive because otherwise you would absorb venom mm. all the time. Yeah, and that almost highlights like this notion that if you apply a, a simplistic quote unquote solution uh, to a complex dynamic system, aka insulin to uh, the the, ecos- the the problem of diabetes, you get a massive array of unintended consequences. But if you look at it from the simplistic perspective, you are ignorant to those unintended consequences, or you simply look at them as a deterministic side effect of some other element, which can be fixed with another deterministic solution. <laughs> right. But so any engineer would tell you that you cannot optimize the part of the system without crashing the whole thing. Hmm. That's like, I take a car, I put a stronger motor in it. I'm like, all right, so you go faster. So now you need better brakes. Right. Right. But you need better brakes. You need better tires. Right. You need so a more rigid chassis. Yeah. Yeah. You have to change it, right. And so, but now you're going faster. The wind is going to hit harder. You have to change the shelf of the car. Can the windows take it? So before right. you know it, you've changed the whole car. Hmm. Except that's not how it was built. So you get a shitty car. So you cannot change a part of the system without changing this, the entire system. That's, that's not how this works. That optimization that they all talk about is a recipe for disaster all the time. You cannot just optimize the part of the system. It doesn't work like that. Yeah, and, and I mean, people don't get signals from all the parts of the system that got fucked up. This is the other thing too. It's like exactly. the, what you see on the surface might, is, is usually a combination of many different systems having functional right. flaws. And then the, 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 the one that's, that you can actually sense is the one that you feel, but th- that's not where the problem is. It's like- No, and it's even worse than that, is the system has basically, if I, we define it in eight hierarchies, right? So the first one is just the heart and- uh, we think it just pumps, but it's far more complex than that. That's a podcast in itself. And then right. you, that's the first hierarchy. But then you have eight hierarchies, the last one being the executive control system in the brain and everything. The fifth hierarchy is the amygdala that is going to decide whether something becomes conscious or not. Because whether it can stay automated or it's something you have to pay attention to. Right. So mm-hmm. that means that you have four hierarchies before that, that you have no conscious of whatsoever that do what they do whether you know it or not, thank God, because you don't have time to take care of them, but it's like breathing, all that stuff, right? You have no control over this. So if you base your stuff on, oh, this is how I feel or whatever, you're playing with hierarchy six, seven, and eight. Well, there's five in the back that already doing a massive amount of work you have no knowledge of. If you don't right. understand those hierarchies, how can you possibly make a decision once you get to the sixth one? Yeah, and you contradict the free energy principle because all of the work that's being done by those, you are essentially creating more entropy in the system, thinking that you're reducing it, right? And you might be reducing one thing, but that thing can be introducing a massive amount of entropy to the system. And it's going to require a huge amount of energy for the body to reduce that entropy. Right. And you might be going, and again, you think you're so smart, but you might be going against against the system directly. You're trying to redirect something, saying this is better for me, where actually it wasn't. This is people telling you they're ready to they're ready to deal with the trauma. I was like, you know that for a fact. What if I release the stuff and it's not the case? Then what? Yeah. Right. So you have that at all levels where you go like, oh, I need more carbs or I need more sugar or whatever. I was like, if you don't crave it, there's a chance you don't need it. If you force mm-hmm. it down, you're gonna you can crash the entire system. So we, for example, with the stuff with insulin, let's just get people sweetener. That way they think they have sugar and they don't. 
And guess what? Now you're going to destroy, you're going to fuck up the entire insulin system. Right. You know how many things are relating to insulin in the body? If we start to play with that, oh my God. And so yeah. you're going to have massive unintended consequences that are going to be far more costly to deal with than the original problem, which is stop eating sugar. Yeah, I, I've, I really feel that health is often by subtraction. And it brings us to the, like this question where, okay, and I often reflect on this. What first principles of health would I have wanted to learn in physio school, which could create the foundation for everything that we learn? And as a filter of like, does this even make sense for us to learn and apply? And, you know, the three that come to mind for me, and I'd love to hear your perspective on this and others that you can contribute, um, is the body is a self-organizing system. The body is a self-healing system. And then this, this principle of specific adaptation to impose demand and how, you, how incredibly useful that is for understanding. Um, those are the big three that come to mind. Because guess what? If we were told, if I was taught that the first day of my physio training, um, I, it would have radically changed I would have challenged everything we were taught, right? Because it's like, well, like, why are we doing these banded things when that's not like, if the body is a self-healing, self-organizing mechanism, why are we introducing more things to a system that is clearly overwhelmed with some variables that aren't good? So why don't we, why don't we figure out what the not good variables are, subtract them and let the body do the magic that we don't actually have to understand the true depth of the magic. You can, if you want, but if you have those basic principles, then it really fundamentally changes your role. You are, you're all of a sudden um, troubleshooting the things we're doing to fuck up the body right, and so getting them out of the system. need to unfuck the people instead of adding stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's not by adding more things though. It's yeah. by, it's by figuring out like what things are, is that person adding without even maybe realizing that they're right. not good to add. And how do we, sort of do some behavior design to engineer out those additions, which are creating system right. overload or system burden. Yeah. Um, so any other first principles? The movement pattern that is being, that is wrong, that is creating the problem instead of adding a new one to it. Yeah. Like even, yeah. you know, I started using uh, the set principle when I was explaining to people, you know, try, trying to simplify why does your back hurt? And connecting that to the fact that you're putting your body in one fixed position sitting in a chair all day. It's like, well, the imposed demand is you're training your body to be really good at having its hip flex at 90 degrees. And the specific adaptation is that it changes the tension in that front area such that when you stand up, what you're not doing as frequently, you have detrained the ability of the body to adapt to the standing position because you're training with preference the sitting position. And yeah, I just, I wish I would have learned those right at the gate because it would have completely changed my perspective on what I did with people. Um, and I think those are, those are literally not talked about and it's really it's no, sad. For, for me, would have been the first one would have been, which actually is something that on the stockfish versus alpha zero with a state versus action is that the state you're in will define the actions you take. Like you see that even in brainwaves, you know, in the, like uh, in brainwaves, you have like specific brainwaves for meditation, for example, the alpha brainwave. But for mm -hmm. example, what's very interesting is the beta brain waves is the only state of the brain when you have negative feelings. Hmm. You, cannot have, you cannot have negative feelings outside of the beta brain waves. How interesting is that? Very interesting. Right. So that means that whenever those people say, I can't get out of my head, I'm always negative. That means you're always in beta, which happens to be looking at the outside, right? Looking at the outside world. It's an, envi it's an environment thing. Right. So that means that if you're in the right state mentally, you will never feel negative. By the way, yeah, I'm you, not if you gain some interoceptive literacy, then you automatically have an option, at least. 
you could not be in a negative mindset if you could be interoceptive. Wow. Hmm. Yes, See, that's, that's, that's huge. Say, yeah, but that's not to say feeling negative about something is a bad thing, by the way. No, or that it's what immediately if, easy. That what to what just... if your environment is bad? You're supposed to feel negative about it. That's how you learn. So by yeah, the way, we function. have to change that definition of negative. Hmm. So first of all, is the reason it's negative is because your system is trying to learn from it and is not managing that. Main reason of anxiety. It's a learning behavior. So, yeah, I, right. I stopped using good or bad. All I, I and I yes. started applying the yes. word useful to everything, yes. and yeah. it, it completely changes uh, like the direction you take because sure nothing. I, it, it's moved. Yeah, I agree with you completely. Yeah, yeah, and that's really important. Like I think that's a that's a that's a paradigm shift in how we in how we think of things and how we pr at least in how the the decisions get made. Right, because like stuff like that tell you it's not even when you judge something negative, then you do it with a very specific state of your central nervous system if you that means that if you were in a different state you would make a different decision mm. so that means that there is no good and bad decision it depends on the state you're in so the state so the, so does the state become the constraint for action exactly so now we're going back to my arm is bent okay so do i need to change a prediction do i need to change the brain wave or do i need to change what my body is feeling right. aha so that depends on context. Sometimes it can be either. Sometimes I need to extend my arm. Sometimes I need to remind myself that my arm is bent. It depends mm -hmm. on what is needed, depends on the context. But that's exactly the whole issue is right there. Do I change the state based on the action or vice versa? But that means that the state I'm in will change the action I'm going to take. So that if I'm in an interoceptive um, mood, I cannot be negative and therefore the decision made will be different. Not always the best idea if the bear is around. Right. So that's why I always say you cannot namaste the bear away. That yeah, idea that the bear is coming and you go, mm, that's true. You're not going to feel negative about it. But right. who cares? The bear is coming. You're supposed to feel negative about it. Yes. Right. But that works the other way, too, that if you only train yourself to be negative, then that's what you're going to be, because you're always in the beta brainwave, which might not fit your environment. So then how do we get you out of it? Hmm. Is it enough to meditate? Well, maybe, maybe not. Their physical training can be a very important factor in this as well. And it's almost like every person has to go on an novelty search to, and actually listen to, to like, create, put the noise away allow the signal to come through, do your own experiments to, to find out like, what is the, what is the way that I can get out of beta state uh, easiest, not should easiest, I? but most should effectively. I? Should I? And should I? Oh, that's I a good, should. yeah. Should I? Because that depends on my environment. And right. two ways to get out of the beta wave. I can do meditation or I can change my environment. Maybe you're in beta wave because you fucking hate your life, because yeah. you hate your job. Maybe you hate your spouse, whatever it is. How about changing that? And it's almost like the, the, the more frequently you make the decision not to change your environment, the more intimidating it is to change yes. the environment. So, and, and, but people don't need to get to that point. That's the thing. It's like, you know, they, they use that as an excuse to us too. I, I need my job. I need to support my family. It's like, well, this isn't the first fucking signal, yeah. right? Like where, where was the first, where was the triage point where like you made your first decision to not change the environment? Cause it was mildly inconvenient. Right. And then yes. it's like, it just gets harder. And by the way, maybe at some point you do need to change your, your life because otherwise you're going to be miserable the whole time. So either you can choose to be miserable the whole time, but then you can complain about it. 
So then you don't right. be miserable. Deal with it. It's we go back back to the same thing. But yeah, I mean, like sometimes if you want to get out of better weight, no, it's not about mm, namaste the better weight. It's about dealing with it and changing what needs to be changed. Maybe it's just standing up to your boss. Maybe it's maybe he's getting a divorce. Maybe it's fixing the situation. Right. Maybe it's who knows. But the point is, you can't just go toward meditation not to feel negative if your environment requires you to be negative. In that sense, sometimes negativity will stop once you have changed your environment. Right. Then you don't need to be in beta. And guess what? Your body, as you say, is a self-healing mechanism. Your body wants balance naturally. If you're in beta all the time, your body is begging you to go toward the other ones, either gamma or theta or alpha or delta. Right. right? If you're in beta all the time, your body can't wait to go toward an interoceptive and meditation stuff. That's why you're daydreaming all the time. Is your body trying to get a break? Change your environment and allow yourself to be there. It's not always about changing the state. Sometimes it's change your environment. Yeah, it's almost like the uh, this book by Anthony DeMello called Awareness. He gives this. He basically makes this uh, tells a story about a guy um, in England finds a bomb, an, an unexploded bomb, gets on a bus. It's in a cardboard box. The bus driver says, "What's in the box?" He said, "Oh, it's an unexploded bomb. I'm bringing it to the police station so that they can explode it." And, and he goes and sits down, the bomb's on his lap, and the bus driver turns around and says, what are you doing with that bomb in your lap? Put it under your seat. That's too dangerous. It's like, that would be like, the bear is there, you meditate, but the fucking bear is still, the bomb is still there. Like, still you have to know. Yeah. yeah. And it doesn't matter if it's under your seat. It might not be an immediate view, but like, it's, there's exactly. still a bomb there. So that's an environment exactly. change is probably the path there. Right. Exactly. Right. And so that your state is dictated by the environment, which is, you know, I think therefore I am is a because of a Descartes mentality. Sometimes we, we think or oh, thought change our actions and, and, and stuff like that. Well, guess what? Your environment has, an, has something to say about that as well. We are products of our environment as well because of, a, of evolution and the necessity to survive in it. Yeah, and I think a good health guide gives you options, right? So you talk about how, okay, like you need to have some sort of framework for, okay, what directions can do I have available to me in terms of decisions? Like, is the bear actually there or is there no bear? Exactly. And then number two is, okay, if the bear is there, then what are my, what is a progression of decisions that I can make from least intimidating to maybe most extreme. Cause I don't have to go to the most extreme one right away. I can sort of like exactly. experiment and see, okay, well maybe this gets me to a threshold where I have more clarity to make the bigger decision. And I think that like a good health guide gives you so, options, not solutions. To, to that, there are three beta brain waves. We divided in into three, but that's very interesting. Beta one is idle. Like you're paying attention to the world, but you know, kind of bored, not really. Beta two is like um, deep logical calculation. Okay. 330 times 12. Hmm. That feeling. Right okay. now you're in beta two, you go <laughs> right. like, yeah. right. Yeah, that'd yeah. be like a jiu-jitsu match when you're winning or stuff like that, where you plan ahead, you calculate. Beta three is hypervigilance. It's surprise, excitement, fear. <laughs> ooh, 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 ooh. Right. That's you calculate beta because based on amplitude and cycle per second, right? Literally, it's uh, you know, like um, in Earth, the higher the Earth, and then you go to mm -hmm. that beta all the way up to gamma. So that means that beta two is deep calculation, beta three is that surprise feeling when you get in a workout when you just got slapped in the face real hard, mm. right? So imagine you're a fighter, right? Do you want to go to beta three when you get punched? You see it all the time, 
then the guy pulses his chest. You have actually very specific physiological reaction then. And that's when the guy starts swinging crazy and gets knocked out. Hmm. So if the guy, instead of going beta three, could stay in beta two, he would do so much better in his fight. Right. Right. So that's to, to your point. Like I have a problem. Do I need beta two or beta three? And that's a very important question. Because beta three has his own set of physiological responses because of energy that needs to be spent in that case and the energy that the brain has to consume in order to, to um, reach a higher uh, frequency and, and things like this, right? So energy-wise, it has very important repercussions. So do yeah. I need beta two or I need beta three? Because beta three, if I spend two energy, that's when I crash and end up in depression. Whereas beta two can be enough to deal with that problem. Well, it depends on the problem. Yeah, and that choice between beta two or beta three is is like a, a very important forking point because that determines yes. your new set of constraints in terms exactly. of your actions. Exactly. And, and the capacity of your brain to deal with it because one is calculation, the other one is hypervigilance. In beta three, you're not doing 330 times 12. Yeah. You have a different very... set of requirements. So, you know, as a, and this is a, a very broad question, so go with it wherever you want, but like, okay, we have a problem. We have a problem in the way that we train people to help people. Because like one thing that I'm seeing now is, is this very interesting thing where when rehab and medical professionals are not doing their job and it's becoming increasingly obvious that that, that, that is the case, right? Yeah. People are understanding this. Right, um, yeah. The fitness world is, is starting to expand its scope because they are literally in a beautiful position to yeah. see people at, at phase one, right? Like at, at phase 10, where you're just all fucked up, you go see your doctor, but like at phase one, there's opportunities to even just like explore, like, okay, what can, what can we do here? Where are you at? What is your understanding? And uh, you know, like what are the knowledge gaps that we need to fill in order for you to feel confident exploring safely? Um, so how do we solve this problem? How do we, how do we solve the, and it's, you know, like, this is just a thought experiment, but someone comes to see you and says, Julian, uh, we just transitioned to a, a, a humanity world. Like we don't have country lines anymore. We need a health system. And I, and one thing I've been doing these days, when people say health system, I say, we can't say that we have a sick care system. Let's just acknowledge it like it is. That way we at least acknowledge the problem. And they come to you and say, we have a, a, a planetary, um, group of humans. We need a health system for them. We need to design a health system and starting with the really macro stuff. Where do we start to design a truly effective health system? Um, because everything's all fucked up. we got to start from zero. So how do we create a new system that makes the old one obsolete? Where do we start? What would you say? And this is like a, a almost right. a, a silly question, but I think it, it I really want to understand your perspective because you have a pretty good grasp on the system's this Involved. is exactly what I'm trying to do. I think it starts, honestly, at an education level. So it's a slow fix, obviously. Yep. But it's like the same thing you see on the population level. How do you fix the polarization in the US? By having a better understanding of your average person. Mm. So that means an education, a better education. of. So it's, an, it's always an overall approach. What we need... I find my, my view of it on this is that, is that we need a better education of the coaches. I believe coaches are the chosen people. Why? Because people go see their doctors twice a year. They come see coaches three, four times a week. They come to see us for everything. 
What's your, even before we go there, what is the, what is the box that you draw around the word coach? How did like, where, where does that stretch to and from? Right. But that's the thing is me. I would like to stretch it by the way. So what I would like to see in the world is a, a gym where uh, that would be kind of a new church where a person can handle something from a certain grade of anxiety to depression to physical symptoms. Obviously, if you're ready to jump off the bridge, you might need a little bit more than a, than, than a coach. But from anxiety to depression to physical symptoms to all the way to six-pack, to that's what, to me, a coach would be. The downside to that is imagine the level of education that coach would need. Hmm. We need to, to understand anxiety all the way to depression, understand movement and how to apply it to a human being and not in a simple Google sheet. So that means that the theoretical all the way to the practical knowledge that a coach like this would, would require would be a lot greater than what it is offered today. Right. And like part of my, you know, like one of the biggest things with the Footner program is like the underlying ethos is you must lead by example. Your journey of curiosity to explore how, why do I feel this way? What, like, what am I doing? How do I become what I would consider someone who's aspiring towards health and is actually showing up on a daily basis to engage with that process and even cares enough to like work with other people to figure it out, right? To have some support. And this whole notion that the, the scope really should be like, what does an individual need to understand in order to be healthy? That should be the fundamental baseline. You can have a deep specialty and obviously you should have a deeper understanding of health than the people you are going to help. But it's really like, it's like the ultimate hero's journey. I go fucking deep in pushing my limits and boundaries of learning about health so that I can come back and share that with other people and, and at least give them some context to like, I can tell you your answer, but I, I went through that same thing and you have to go through a lot of shit in order to be able to say that. I went through that same thing. I talked to a bunch of other people who have gone through that same thing. This seems to be some good options to understand and to take action. Like let's brainstorm what the most appropriate one is for you. And the cool thing about sharing from experience is you, you're, there's no fear of being wrong. You're always wrong right. if you're always evolving. And like, that's a really powerful mindset, I think. I would agree completely. It will require people to go to increase their humanity as much as their knowledge. I mean, that because they will have to go into things they're not necessarily comfortable with, things they don't know as well. It would require you to become a better human. Right. Which is what I'm trying to communicate to all my coaches is we all flawed. God knows I am. But I'm still, I'm, still, I'm still curious because I'm still pushed by the need to help people, right. others. Like that's still my, nothing has changed. It's been, what, uh, Jesus Christ, what, 20, 30 years almost mm -hmm. uh, of this and that hasn't changed. And to me, the answer is always the same for myself. It's like, I need to understand humans better. Yes. I cannot help someone. If Starting I with yourself. The human. Yeah. And because it turns out that the shoulder problem and everything like i can help 80 90 percent of of it um you know movement wise but there's always that 10 15 percent that is emotion based yeah that we can't really explain but that trauma that you had you know like maybe as a kid or this or that seems to have some impact on specific muscle we call that emotional mapping i can't fully explain that one at william reich tried to go at it um, back in the 1920s, he was a student of Freud and he had like something called character analysis where he was completely crazy on half the stuff, but the other half was really cool. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the crazy people are the ones who get shit done, right? Like it's yeah, he had some really cool stuff. Yeah. And he, 
but they were there is something there as well right that has to be explored but um you have to be fearless to go there yes because you're gonna have to be willing yeah. to go i have no fucking clue about what this means or whatever on a regular basis also <laughs> but and your saving grace is experimenting is exploration right. it's like i don't know but let me go try so for example anybody i'm sure has done a workout so hard they started crying I'm sure everybody went through that at least once, right? Okay, why? Why did it bring up certain images up? Right. And so that I've spent a lot of time exploring and we're very good at it. We have workouts to trigger very specific things. How come anger unexpressed seems to be always in the lower back? I've seen so many people where we stop the pain, that tension in the lower back just through expressing anger. There's stuff like that we don't understand fully. I don't understand them fully at least. But yeah. I've experimented enough with it to know it's there. So that pushes me forward because I still can't figure out why. So, and then coming from that thought experiment, like two, two things that I think need to be addressed is number one, uh, how do we create like a, a quality control of the rigor involved in having the, so if you want to be identified as the guide, what, number one, what's the measuring stick we're using to engineer this game theory to incentivize health outcomes? Number two, what is the mechanism um, by which we're using to determine like how rigorous does this person actually, like how do we measure it? What's the measuring stick so that we can actually, cause this whole, like we're working on understanding this right now. It's like, okay, if we created a, a, a health guide label, which is a macro label for any health professional. So you can be a doctor, but you're a health guide first, and then you can be a physician. Your specialty can be in medicine. What is the, how do we measure the effectiveness of a health guide? And, you know, having like an online marketplace like Uber, Uber um, creates a feedback loop. So that people say, well, this driver's shit and this driver's good. Well, it's like, okay, well, if you have enough of those votes, then that gives you an indicator to have like some social mechanism embedded. Um, and what measuring stick are you using, right? Like, because, right. and, so, and that's, that's a hard problem to solve. But so, I, I, first of all, problem with measuring stick. It's called a good hard law of economics. When a measurement becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measurement. Yeah, so people game it. Right. So we have to be careful with that because that's always the problem with measuring sticks. Right. But if you understand the system deep enough, you can start to have interesting insights. Let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, lactate is not uh, is not a waste product. It's a fuel, right? If you understand that, it leads you to really a different understanding. For example, of anxiety, uh, lactate is being produced anytime your body requires going in that, toward beta brain toward the sympathetic reaction, right? But for example, we did a study on uh, lactate levels and anxiety. What was very interesting is that you realize that there are two ways to produce lactate. You can, one is physically by going on a treadmill or lifting something or running or whatever. But the other one is just getting into a fight. Hmm. You go into a fight with a spouse, with a kid or whatever, measure your lactates before and after you'll see a spike. Right. Even if the fight is not physical, right? Yeah, doesn't matter. Okay. All you gotta do is get pissed. Okay. You start to stress about it, your lactate goes up because the fuel is there in order to go toward the fight. Because remember, the body is predictive, not reactive. Mm. It's not deterministic. So therefore, you're already producing the lactate. Right. It's kind of like so, smelling smelling the food. It's like you're going to okay. start. Same idea. Yeah. Fight, lactate goes up, fuel is there because I'm going to need it. 
um, it becomes very interesting. So that means that if I measure the levels of lactate at rest, right, rest meaning there is no physical activity happening, I would be able to at least have a measure of how much of a mental fight you're in at that moment. So if you walk around at levels of lactate that are equivalent of you doing a sweat sprint, imagine what it does to you physically. Imagine what your anxiety level must be. Imagine what physiologically you go through on a daily basis. You're basically living in a state of panic attack. And, and the other thing too, is people discount the fact that if someone gives you a negative comment on Instagram and you take that internally as a, as a strike in your identity, that's yeah. the same shit by, in terms of how it's acknowledged by the body and the amount of people yes. that are literally like, I think some people are addicted to that because it gives them something, right? You know like to the brain, it shows the same as a physical uh, altercation. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's the same thing. So imagine what it does to you. By the way, beta, interestingly, when you go to the brain waves, some are associated with specific neurotransmitters. So beta brain waves is dopamine. Hmm. So that means you cannot process beta, uh, dopamine unless you're in the beta brain wave, then the body will flush it out. So there's an entire rabbit hole based on that one. But you could see where that would start to go up and up and up and up and up. So you can even say that, I mean, the attention economy and how that's incentivized financially is essentially bringing us to, to those states. <laughs> like that is, that's, that's what captures us. Right. Yeah. So that means that you're going to end up in a state where, like, for example, we know anxious people, we give them a solution of lactate, they get a panic attack. Hmm. So that means that lactate is actually, in a way, a level of how up you're going toward the fight mode in a kind of oversimplifying type of way. Right. So measuring your level of lactate at rest will tell us how high you are on that level already. By the way, you cannot store lactate. So if it's everywhere there, there's a moment where you start to cross the blood-brain barrier, starts to fueling the brain toward, of course, excitation, beta brain waves. So it starts to feed the system like that. Mm -hmm. And so it also starts to fall into your gut. They are specific and it goes straight into your muscle. So you can start to get like this because that lactate has to be used because it cannot be stored. If the gluconeogenesis doesn't get enough of it, you could see how a lot of that stuff would have very, very specific physical repercussions. So walking around in that state, it's basically you walking around with kerosene all the way through the car with the first match that gets lit up and then the whole thing goes, catches on fire. So levels of lactate at rest can be measured and we give you a very good indication at least of where you stand, where your state is. Not that lowering them is necessarily what I want to do because it might not change your environment. But you right. could tell how as a measure, not as a target, but as a measure, we could start to find things like this to establish somewhat of a roadmap. Yeah, like it's a, it's a, it's a snapshot like data point. Yeah, well, look, normal is one to 1.5. Okay. Right, so let's say I take a person, I put you on a treadmill, usually by minute four, five, you're at four, five. Um, if you get to 10, you started to get, you, you're running fast. Uh, at 16, it's a 400 meters, right? Uh, 20, you're starting to go sled sprints, like really hard, like you're dying. I had a client who walked around at 22. Holy shit. Imagine, just to give you an idea, the lactate measurement stop at 24. <laughs> <laughs> you're almost clocked it. Walking around. Yeah, like. Right, so imagine the state of the person, but that also tells you something. Is like you have gotten there 
You were not born there. You have, so your reaction to stress in your everyday life is completely out of whack. I have to fix that. So maybe training you to spike all the time using strongman and powerlifting is not a good idea because I'm just teaching you to spike more. So if you give contacts respect, that measure can be useful. Exactly. So back to the question of like, how do we measure the effectiveness of a health guide or a coach in terms of like, you know, okay, number one, we need a long enough term relationship with someone to actually like get data and give general context. But how do we avoid, you know, the Cobra effect from happening with a measure? Um, like there, I think we need some sort of measure, right? Like it doesn't. No, no, we do, it, we do. And yeah. that, that's, but the measurement becomes the thing is I think we're using, we're using too few of measure or the wrong ones in the sense of look at measure for a coach. What is it? Is like, is, did my deadlift go up? Did my hundred meters go down? Did, you know, things yeah. like this. Yeah. We would have to give more tools to coaches to measure. We have tests for anxiety, sensitivity, right? So we would have an assessment that establishes like lactate of levels at rest on one side, anxiety sensitivity on the other. We find who that person is, where the markers are, give it six weeks, give it, and then where, which way the markers are going to have also environment, their own environment and everything. That would require a far more extensive knowledge of the person and of the testing. But to me, that's the only way we move forward toward knowing if the coach is doing a good job or not. Yeah, because, you know, I, I've put out a challenge. We have a learning team with the Footner program where it's like, can we develop a global health metric? Like literally 10 questions, score out of 100. That gives us, with some reliability and validity, an indicator, like a start to a measuring stick. Or is that not, is that literally impossible with such a complex system? And even having certain questions that, you know, give you, like, how many medications are you? Or are you taking medications? Like, that could be a binary thing, one. right? I got, I got one. ten. I got one because I said to everybody uh, all the time, do you wake up more tired than when you went to bed? Yeah, that, that's one of the questions we have. percent of people say yes, amazingly. Yeah. Right. And right. then even something like a, uh, you know, even a question where, you know, people are like, oh, it has to be completely objective. It's like, okay, we're talking about health. Health is radically subjective. So even like the whole idea that putting this in place into a digital ecosystem yeah. Um, gives people like physicians a tool to be able to direct, like you shouldn't have to guess whether the person you're going to see for your health knows what they're doing or not. Because you don't even know, like how to, yeah. you know, like that, it would be really nice to just be like, well, that person has helped X amount of people and has this amount of reps. And this is their, essentially, you could say if it was a hundred point scale, this amount of money on average is paid to get this amount of points improved on that scale. So if you go see a physio, you spend $1,500, you go up two points on the scale. Well, that's a fucking shit physio. So number one, it's a feedback loop for them to be like, you need to do better because you suck. And if you go see a physio and they bring you up or, or a coach and they bring you up 40 points on two visits, well, that should be financially rewarded by having more people sent to you because clearly you've demonstrated effectiveness. And even having some, how confident, how do you feel about your health? I'm not healthy. I am extremely healthy. That's extremely subjective, but also that matters because their perception is the cheapest. When they say we right. want something objective, I'm like, bullshit. Sure. They yeah. Like that. Everything is, uh, is subjective <laughs> to it. When it comes to human, neuroscience yeah. is, is science and it's based on subjectivity since half the stuff is based on questionnaires anyway. Sure. It doesn't work like that. Like that whole like objective is complete bullshit to people. I just don't want to go there. Nothing relating to bi even biology is subjective. To, uh, to and it's it's funny because they would. Is turns out. 
they would prefer something objective and uh, of no use than something subjective that's highly but useful. They want a deterministic world, but turns out yeah. Yeah, even yeah. quantum mechanics are subjective because the observer changes the experiment. So I got news for you. It's a pipe dream. Yep. There's no such thing as objective. By diff even in quantum mechanics, you cannot find it. They just want a simple world, uh, a deterministic world that we had at the end of the 18th and 19th century where, you know, like you die, you either go to hell or you go to heaven, like something simple where, you know, my actions lead me to this and everything. So yeah. there are simple questions, simple answers in a world that don't have any, it's not like that. So I do believe uh, we can do a system like that. I just know it won't be 10 questions. Yeah, yeah, and it would have that, to be dynamic that too. Be the only thing is that, well, I mean, okay, let me rephrase that. We could start with 10 questions. And as we go deeper in a relationship with the person, we keep adding levels to it. Right. As the, I think it's directly proportional to the complexity of the relationship and how, how far exactly. they're going into their process. Right. At the start, it's like, exactly. we just need clarity. Do you understand the fundamentals? Do you sleep? Yeah. <laughs> do, you sleep? Yeah. do you eat? Fuck. Do you eat real food? Like, that's it. Right. Do you know do what you real food is? With a level of lactate at 22. How about that? <laughs> Yeah, are you, that, would, that would tell me we need to fix a few things, by the way. Yeah, okay. and like, like, wouldn't it be great if doctors measured lactate and actually had some context to be able to be like, all right, well, this is it. This right. this is interesting. Let's try this and maybe, then let's remeasure. Maybe there's something. How's your work going? Uh, yeah. But yeah, so no, I do believe like we could start somewhere. But I think, as, as you said, is that we need the scaling system. As the relationship becomes deeper and a bit more complex, so mm. is the testing, so is the judging of the coach. They all will have their own specialty anyway, but they need to have an overall understanding that some of those uh, measurements make sense. Yeah, like one thing I've thought of is like, okay, well, if we did create a health guide system that was global yeah. and had like a fuckload of smart people deciding how the system gets created and yeah. dynamically evolves, you have almost like a, it's like a craft, like a trade almost. Yeah. You have an apprentice. So the apprentice is essentially, uh, they do the 10 question thing. They bring people to a certain place. Um, they have a metric for when their understanding is now going to limit that progress. And then, you know, you have apprentice, you have a junior guide, an advanced guide, and then you have a master. And like even a, even a mentorship program, which I know you guys offer, like that's really the only way, right? Like you have I to have so. someone who's gone to that point and can essentially ensure that the person who is getting there, it's like, it's like jujitsu, right? Yes. You don't just, it's not taken lightly when you get a black belt and it's also not fucking easy. Um, and so and only people. Not, yeah. That's why we all respect it. Yeah. And you need a sense of like personal responsibility and personal purpose to you go through the, all the that? shit to get there. You know, created that the guy who created the university system, his name was Leonardo da Vinci. The yeah. university system was always supposed to be a mentoring stuff, one-on-one. -on -one. He was the mentor of King of France. Philip, mm. forget his name. Uh, he was his mentor for years. And that's how teaching was done then. It was a one-on-one -on -one thing. So mm. we can do a bit better than that now because we have more, we have access to, to stuff. But it was always, that mentoring system was always supposed to be the way to teach. Always. Mm. Industrial revolution changed the school system into that farming that we see now. But right. if you look at universities, which is supposed to be higher education, was always supposed to be 
a mentoring program. That's why you start learning at a PhD level because you have a mentor that actually can help you along. So I believe that's the way to do it is you need the master. That's the key. The guy who goes like, no, 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 no. You fucked that one up completely. Yeah. And you need the masters to be the people who are dictating the evolution of the, because like, I think yes. along the whole way, the core of this whole potential system is a health protocol, right? Like an evolving yes. set of rules um, that's dynamic and has changed as, as we kind of learn, but like have feedback loops where every person going through becoming a, a master health guide, if they want to actually get there. Cause I also think there's a place for like, if all you want to be is an apprentice and help people at the start of their process, like maybe there's a place for that without the need to go to black belt. Right. Yeah. Um, no, and, everybody's and, going to be a black belt and that's fine. At least you know enough to defend yourself, which is the and, point. Yeah. Not everyone that wants to be a black belt will actually have the rigor to get there. That's another important point. It's like this whole thing of, Oh, anyone could be anything. It's like it that you don't want because you don't want it that bad. And that's okay. Exactly. And I think it's like this binary thinking where it's like either you are or you aren't. It's like, well, there's a lot of gray. And I think there needs to be a lot of gray because there's by virtue of like, um, like there's not going to be as many masters as there are apprentices. There just will never be that. And that, that is actually the natural occurrence of how that's supposed to happen. Um, yeah, that's the thing is that's where money will corrupt that by, by if you start to make money by passing belt, then they want to have more black belts because they can have more schools, then they can have more money and everything. And that's where you see the, the, the quality starting to go down and, and, and things like this. Like you don't have to push a guy to go from blue to black. Maybe that's not what he wants or whatever. Right. So a good master should know this. This is yeah. where money gets in the way uh, most of the time, but that's, I agree with you completely. The point is that not everybody has to go from blue to black. Not everybody wants it. Not everybody has to. Some people will be just fine as blue. Yep. And that's all good. We don't need people to get to black. Not always. Yeah. And I think along with the health protocol, there has to be like this whole notion. I'm like really fascinated with uh, distributed systems. Like I've been nerding out on the, the structure and the math and engineering behind Bitcoin, not Bitcoin yeah. as like most, but this whole notion of having a financial protocol embedded, like a decentralized autonomous organization where a group of people get together, this needs to be created. It's filling a, we need to fill, we need to solve this problem. It can only be done yeah. together. So if a, a subset of, if a set of masters who have like gone pretty far along their health process created a DAO where the rules are embedded and rules can only change if everyone adopts the protocol rules. It's the same thing as essentially the foundation of Bitcoin. Like, I think because now we live in a global world, right? Like in, in five years, we're not going to be talking about domestic currencies as much because this is just like, that's the future is going to change. It already changed. You can't make the, put the eggs back in to egg form after the almost been made. That was made a while ago. So anyway, probably some future conversations, but I think the, you know. That's, but that's very needed because we lack certain studies. There's some right. stuff that I had to go get because I can't find them. Mm -hmm. Because the guy doing the studies on anxiety don't know movement. Right. So it's always on a bicycle. I'm like, yeah, but I, the last study I did was I showed that the runners and the crossfitters don't have the same reaction, don't have the same type of anxiety for the, uh, based on VLA max or VO2 max. Hmm. Yeah, I think part of that sense make that part of that financial architecture of a, you know, of an aligned community of people who want it, who give a shit about health is devoting a certain amount of the revenue towards 
outlets of under deeper understanding, like doing research in-house without and a finance with, data to everybody yes. and give it and, and allowing the mass network of processing, right. which is like exactly. a human neural net of people that are deeply have skin in the game. This is one of the big things is like the yeah. masters. If those are the gatekeepers to the label of master health guide, they have skin in the game. If you're a black belt, you know, the shit you went through, you don't give away black belts. Like you're giving away right. ice cream. You fucking, uphold the standard which might not be objectively qualified but like you know a certain you have a certain understanding where you can ask certain questions or say like okay if this person came in what would you do and you can gauge that right like that's where the mentoring part comes in and it's like a really strong financial architecture solves so many of the problems with money corrupting because it's hard-coded if you hard code things and you and, and like I think no, there's something very powerful talking. there. Like what we need is to have the masters talking. I got a problem where I don't get to talk to anybody anymore. Almost no one wants me on their podcast anymore or stuff like that. I'm like, I'll talk about this every single day. I'll take, I literally, I will do five podcasts a week. I don't mind. On top of mine. Just to get the stuff out there so people can use it. Because then in exchange, when I'm like, I don't know about this one. Can you explain to me that one? Because, But at this stage, a lot of it, I have to do study biology to figure out some of the stuff. I hate biology. I'm forced to do it. God, I hate it. I'd much rather have a master at this going, taking me through the stuff, right. allowing me to understand so that, and then, you know, like that way we do the testing and then we have the study and he has his study and I'm like, oh, so otherwise we all stuck in a place where it's harder. And if it's harder, we can't help as many people. Right. And it's not about money. I'm fine. I don't give a shit. I give most of, look at my podcast. I give my stuff for free anyway. Right. People still need to come to see me to make it work half the time. So it makes no difference whatsoever anyway, since no one understands what I'm talking about most of it. Right. So it makes, I mean, like it's money does not have to be that. We can, right. if we can just have people in the pool saying, guys, I got a cool stuff. I don't mind giving it to anybody who can, I can have a conversation with, because then I'll gain something back and saying like, um, yeah, would you go test that with your own people, please? Because I'm kind of curious to know if I'm right or wrong. Yeah, like when when one person teaches, two people learn if it's done in it like exactly. an actual real way. And it's exactly. you, oh, even if you talk to someone, like, do you think there's value of a black belt rolling with a white belt? Yes, always. Because the white belt will do some crazy shit that you did right. not expect. Right. Because and it's a new piece of data. Exactly what we're gonna do. Right. And then you know what we're gonna do? Not lose most of the time. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, because you, I'm going to stop you before you go there because I'm not going to let you do this. I'm not going to let you do that. So I'm going to put my leg. Well, the white belt will do some crazy shit where you go, where did that come? That was awesome. Right. I don't know what that was. Half exactly. the time, 99% of the time, it won't work. But once in a while, you go like, that was cool. Yeah, and or, it, or it leads it, and it leads you to a different path, right? Like it allows you to connect two dots. Yeah. With, I can like, do that. Yes. Right. And then I can use it. My main thing, me, is I want to know if I'm wrong or if I'm right. I don't yes. care either. I just want the truth, even if it's not yes. mine. If I if yeah. I'm not the one discovering it, I just want to know what anxiety is and and have very specific questions. Yes. I just want to find that answer. I don't care if I'm not the one who has the answer. I just want the answer. Yeah, regardless like, where it comes from. I just want to know if I'm right or wrong on the shit. Yeah, like one of our biggest points in the Footner Manifesto is that it's better to learn than to be right. If you don't deeply resonate yes. with that, then don't like that's that's yes. the selection criteria. So we get really we get badass humans. What's your ideal in a perfect like if tomorrow someone was like, okay, Julian, whatever money you need to make, 
you, we just give it to you, but what would be your percentage allocation of having conversations with other, with other people, like circling concepts, uh, independent learning and working with other humans, just as like a, as a guess, what would be your, if you allot X amount of time weekly to, of energy towards this, towards understanding health and solving the problem, what would be your ideal allocation of doing podcasts, independent learning, like deep work and working with people? I would do working with people right now in my life would be, would be 50% at least. Okay. Interesting. Because uh, that's what I'm doing it for. Right. I want to see my only, you know what I like the most about the mentoring program? We have the progress my coaches made as humans. Hmm. If you ask me what I'm the proudest of is that yeah. I, some of my coaches are better humans, partly because of me, because I let them down a path where they found themselves better. That's beautiful. I'm, I'm good. Yeah. Here's a question. Do you think you could scale that an order of magnitude without sacrificing the quality? Yes. It's just, it's a, but then it's a people's game in the sense of give me the right people and I'll shape them the right way. Do you think you can do it with spending? Do you think you could shape a coach to an equal level, I mean, to an equal level of effectiveness, let's say not one-on-one -on -one equal, because obviously if you're not with someone, but like if someone was in Australia and they're like, Julian, I can't come see you, but I want to be part of this. Yeah. How, like, basically, can you systematize the way that you help people to make it essentially scalable through technology without a, without a ceiling based on your energy output? Yeah, I believe it's, it's feasible. That's, God knows that's what I'm trying to do. I do believe it's feasible. It's just um they are um yes it's it's a matter of how many like for example what has worked really well i've noticed is we have something we call a coach's course like six eight weeks sometimes 12 or 16 i don't care yep. they come in and i give them access to everything whatever you want to have access to and really what i tell them is choose two things hmm. that's what we're going to do for the next 12 weeks and they, and those two things means, is your shoulder hurting? Then that's what we're fixing. You have anxiety, then that's what we're fixing. So they're the and, experiment. Right. And then we do that for 8, 12, 16 weeks or whatever. I give them access to the entire thing. My think theory, whatever you want, but choose two things. And we're going to dive into this because always leads to Rome anyway. At the end, the principles that you will find work for everything else anyway. So it doesn't matter how you go at it, you will end up in the same place. I just need you, like, you know, ultra-focused on, usually yourself works better, on the experimentation, on the exploration part as much as the exploitation, on that arch of, let me fix my shoulder. Shit has been hurting for 10 years. Let's take 16 weeks and fix that. But let's really go at it. With the theoretical background in the back. Hmm. But all that is going to be applied to your left shoulder. And I know because I've been through it and da, 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 da. And right. if I can do that, you just become a better coach. Because first of all, next person who comes with a shoulder problem, you know something. And you can empath empathize with that person. And you understand the concept as to why your shoulder was hurting before and is not anymore now. And that you can transfer to the next person. And then we do it for the next subject and the next subject and the next subject. So yes, it will be time consuming. 
Now, what about interpersonal, like, do you guys in your coaching um, program, like, do you guys touch on interpersonal dynamics and like emotional intelligence? Do you have, do you, yeah, that's fucking huge. Oh my God. I find that that's almost like the bottleneck. You can be so fucking smart. You can be incredibly smart and have a great understanding. If you cannot connect with another human, if there's a barrier of, of you being able to connect with someone, it's like, and that I learned nothing about that in I'm going to, I'm taking a master's degree on how to help humans. And all I'm learning about is the car of human. I'm not learning about anything about how to work with humans. And that like, that's such a big, that's such a blatant oversight. But it's 95% of the job. I, it ask is. Any trainer, ask any trainer on the global gym. He's like, how much of your job is dealing with people? They would say, what do you mean? 95% of it. Right. We talk about their life most of the time while they do three movements, so we can do a bit better, obviously, but it is still part of it. If you don't have that relationship, they won't listen. If they won't listen, they won't do the work anyway. State versus action. We're still there. That doesn't change. Like your job as a coach, those very smart people just don't want to connect to people. Right. Right. Well, I got news for you. It's a wrong career. Yeah. And I don't think they understand that it's actually a limiting factor. Like I, I and it, you know, so, what's, what's even worse, the two things that piss me off the most is number one, when you select, when you create a really tight filter for selection criteria in physio school, you have to be an A-plus student now. Uh, you have to be able to afford to actually spend a fuckload of money to do this degree. And so you're automatically selecting for the people who are most able to do well on tests. Yeah. That's it. And oftentimes the people who do well, not direct, directly correlated, but like a lot of people who were in my class that were extremely good at tests were the antithesis of what you would want if you wanted to select for someone who could understand and work with humans and communicate effectively. Um, So because of the marks and because of the people you select for, you create this weird artificial scarcity of like the helpers who aren't even taught how to help. And yet prices a lot of people out from even doing that. And it's like, it doesn't have to be scarce, especially if you create a scaled system where like health, health guide apprentices, like could anyone can do that. You should be able to take like six months, commit to health personally. And you can, yeah. And I feel for coaches in that sense of where do you go? Like, right. let's say you're not an academic type person and God knows I'm not. I just learn my way, right? But you right. put me into an academic system, an institution, and I lose my mind, which yeah. is why I never went through it. Uh, where do you go? Who do you, like, you have to go through very specific person stuff, but usually they show you like, you know, like how to do the squat or this, or they teach you. Right. Like that objective bullshit science of, you know, energy systems and that's how you use an airdyne and everything. And I'm like, yes, but that's barely the beginning. Dealing with people <laughs> is still the job. Yeah. So where do you go, though? So outside of a mentoring system, there's al- almost nowhere to go for coaches. So I feel for them because I feel a lot of them have their, have their heart in the right place. They just don't right. know where to go. Yeah, and it's overwhelming. Like the, the amount of choices yeah, and information true. out there, you know, and like one thing to hard code into this sequence would be, okay, in order to go from apprentice to like a junior guide, you have to be a mentor for an apprentice. Like you embedded in this, hard coded into it is you have to work with another human who's striving to get to where you have gotten to. And even just the learning that happens there of like, maybe you get paired up with someone who's, who's, who you don't have a direct one-on-one match in terms of how you communicate or all, like that's part of the fucking thing. That's part of the training to do this. part of your job. Yeah. So like, don't get me wrong. Some clients will never be yours because personality sometimes don't match, but that doesn't mean there's not an effort there to be made. That's not right. I mean, there's not a lesson to be learned. There's 
this is still the job is still dealing with people like that whole like arrogance almost like religious arrogance of the medical profession mm. kills me every time because like i have this all the time i talk to very high levels uh phds and the first 30 minutes of the conversation is them testing me right to see if they, and then after all they go oh okay and then the conversation starts and i'm like I did not test you. Like, come on. Like, yeah, it's a way. It's, it's basically a. It's a. It's a weird thing. It's just an ego thing. It's like it's totally. strictly all it is. That's the system. So I feel waste of time. because they don't feel confident because they did not go through the academic formation probably because in front of a sheet of paper they don't feel comfortable, right. and so they already like you know confidence wise, a bit sure. like this. And then where do you go? Like there's mm. almost people selling, like, if you do this, like you'll make a million dollars and yeah, yeah. And they're like, ah, it's, it's, a, it's a hard situation for people that have the heart in the right place. And the more they care about helping people, usually the, the least they fit that position of the videos you're talking about or the guy who's going to be slick at business or all that stuff. So yeah. they, they're in a hard position. But they're also, uh, yeah, so do I. I feel for even the docs that are just stuck in a fucking shit game that see no way out, that are just trapped. Insurance to deal with and stuff like that. I talked to a bunch of them and I know the the insurance game is hard. Yeah, I mean, I'm in Canada, so it's like, it's just who pays that changes. You just pay in your taxes instead of paying after you pay taxes, but it's it's the same shit. And it's, you know, anyway, I think it's the biggest problem. It's the most exciting problem to solve, which is like, it's probably why you're in the space. It sounds like it. Um, yeah, and, and then I, to me, it's because I uh, more and more I see less people, I see more coaches because that's really where I feel, first of all, I have the biggest impact. But that those now get to be the people I feel for the most is I see the intention, the intent right. of helping others, which of course I relate to. And I look around and I'm like, shit, man, how do you do that? Because I had the chance to have great jujitsu coaches who told me about stuff like that. But what if you don't? Yeah. The world doesn't have to be fair, but I do feel for them in, in most cases. Right? Yeah. And like the biggest sore spot for me is like people come with this massive tank of energy that they're willing to aim and point at solving the health problem and helping people. And then they spend so much, they don't know where to direct it. So they spend so much time directing in a bunch of different places. They dilute the energy available and they literally get crushed by this. They burn, um, they burn out. And I loved how on one podcast you said burnout doesn't come from like, how I interpreted expending a huge amount of energy, it comes from not feeling like you're making an impact. And I see that with all of my physio friends who are, who are now like, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. It's not because they're spending too much energy. They're not getting any feedback to say they're making a difference. And they know inside they're like, this is, I'm fucking just doing the same shit and it's not actually proving things. And that hurts me and more yeah, than because they know it's been six months and the show yeah. has not getting better. And now it's the 12th or 25th or 56th that I see with the same problem that I'm not fixing. It's the personal trainers where people tell them, you know, that's not a job, you're a bartender basically. And right. that, that's the burnout is, is knowing you don't make a difference in the world. And by the way, that's not true. You right. are making a difference. Uh, like we can do better, there's no question, but good coaches burning out is what rips my heart out the most. Yep. And that, that's really what I'm trying to apply myself to is that it's like, no, 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 it's okay. We, it's a harsh world. There's no question. It's a harsh existence because you will care about people's health more than they will. They don't help more than they will. And that's a fact.
But what if we don't do this? Yeah, it's way worse if you don't. And it's you like, it's like make make yeah. the suffering meaningful. And it's you know if you can help reduce some of the friction. That's who you um, evolved to be. You know that inside. You care. Yeah. Amazing, brother. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. I think in future, like I would love to do another one in a couple months and just yeah. learn about learn about what you're learning and maybe even align forces because we have, you know, I have no same thing on our end. It's like I just want TFC to be used as a platform that we can sure. generate enough monetary energy to continue fueling it forward. And the the understanding that if I'm we got I'm fine. Yeah, and it's but it, but I think money's still important because that's the juice that fuels the machine. If we want to actually make an impact, right? Not money for us to keep, but to yeah. re-input into the system. And I think if we got like a group of let's call them masters, for lack of a better word, you have a doctor, you have a physio, you have a coach, you have a psychologist. If we can pool together some of the special people who may not be having a big voice right now and create something that has no brand allegiance, right? It's just a label, whatever fucking label, like this X. And just create a system that helps people find some direction of where to point their energy, like you said, um, and offer levels of understanding, right? Like if you want to start, it's not, it's not a crazy commitment, but if you want to go further, the path is there for you if you want to go there. Um, if you can just get the results out, it would make yeah. such a difference. Like you can't publish anything. I can't publish anything. Right. Like most of the times that it's being done is being done by doctors. I'm doing it. Like the study, like that girl who's doing a PhD, I created the entire study. Her mentors are not doing shit because they don't understand. Yeah. So she's going to get to a PhD with my stuff all the way. You can't get published. And at the end, I do not give a shit. Right. Uh, but we need to- well, give stuff. a shit about the, the problem with the system that creates study. that. that. Yeah. Because I just want the stuff out there. Once that studies are there, I want people to look at it, to go like, look, see, anxiety, training. That's how we fix it. Right. With that stuff, because then we help people. So a, a psychologist uses this in his practice and he works. Then his friends will want to, and again, and now we're starting to move the ball forward. So it's just, if you can just have results and fucking get them out there, that right. would start the revolution. It's ready. We just need a way to put it out there. Yeah. And when you don't care who takes credit, you care about the net result. Okay. Like that's okay. part, that's part of what allows this to actually happen. So much of my shit works. It's just not out there because like, I can't get podcasts with people anymore. They don't want to, I don't really think I'm going to blast them or whatever it is, but they don't want, they, they're so scared. They use all my stuff, like Kelly Starrett and Brian McKenzie. It's all my stuff continuously. They just never want to quote me. Brian McKenzie follows me. Kelly knows who I am because we talk through third parties because they don't want to talk to me directly. It's so fucking weird. Why don't they want to talk to you? I have no clue. No mm -hmm. idea. I, I mean, I kind of know why, because they used a lot of my stuff and they know if we were to have a pointed conversation, they get buried. Mm. But I'm not confrontational. So I'm not looking to bury them in their business, but I think that's the way they see their business. Right. It's a dog eat world, like I need to be on top or whatever. And they're afraid of either looking like they don't know what they're doing or that they know less or something like that, it seems to me. Mm. It's the weirdest thing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, part of that core, like there's so many smart people in disparate areas that aren't connecting into a network. Yeah. And if they did, there would be so much more cross-pollination and evolution. So do so much better. Yeah. So anyway, st stuff to think of and stuff to work on. So Julian, thank you so much for taking the there time. You. And uh, yeah, I'll shoot you an email. I don't know, maybe a couple. I know you're a busy dude. So I'll, uh, I'll get some more fuel for conversations that we can have. And uh, 
yeah, I would love to do this again. And I appreciate you, man. Let's talk. Let's talk All some right. more, man. Whatever you want. All right, brother. Take care of yourself. Everyone listening, right. we hope you enjoyed that. Catch you next time. Yeah.